another very amusing thing uh, that you said when you came here was that you were actually in the meeting and at the same time you were standing up here and, and just in a small talking with us and, mm -hmm. and at the same time you were in a meeting, right? Yeah. yeah. That's kind of interesting. But is that... What do you think about that? Can, can you actually do that these days, you think? You so I, I've actually studied this and experimented around this. And, and it started uh, during the pandemic when we were facing situations that we got more and more meetings. Everybody wanted to have Teams or Zoom meet, meetings at all times. So, so at one point, I was actually called to two meetings at the same time. And they were extremely important. I, I had to be in both of them, they said. So I said, well, what the heck? I have two ears and I have two devices. So let's connect uh, uh, to both meetings and one meeting in one ear and another meeting in the other ear. And uh, to be fair to everybody, I also informed both meetings that I actually was in two meetings at, at the same time. And, and I just to avoid, the, you know, this effect of you have forgotten to unmute yourself. I said, well, uh, when I'm muting my picture, I'm speaking in the other meeting so that, you know. So I did that. And afterwards, I, I interviewed the participants of both meetings, uh, a few selected ones from both meetings and asked them, how did you, what did you feel about my participation and contribution in the meeting? And they said, well, you're just the way you use, usually are. And, and, and you, you actually, I thought it was amazing that you actually could take info from the other meeting you were in and bring it into our meetings because they were about more or less the same things in this. And and to me, this worked perfectly well. So I, I started experimenting around this and, and tried out this uh, several times uh, to see how it worked well. And, and amazingly enough, it actually worked quite well. And I could see that, for example, it enhanced uh, my uh, my experience. If I could see that they had PowerPoints in one of the meetings, then it was easier okay. to grasp it. I found that it was easier if both meetings were in the same language. So one Swedish and one English meeting were, were a bit so more... the brain then becomes... <laughs> yeah, it, the brain to I didn't get, become as hot in my brain <laughs> than if I had it like that. And I, I also tried three meetings at one point but but uh, that that was simply too too uh, too stressful to do and uh, for me it sounds really really hard i mean for me to just listen to two people speaking at once i, I know my girlfriend for example she can speak with her friend at the same time and they speak and listen at the same time and i i can't really do that i say please stop talking one one person should speak at, at one point in time otherwise you, you can't follow it but some people can some people seems to have the ability to have this kind of ability to just even do two things at once. It, perhaps you have that strength. Well, well, I, I, uh, I mean, I've been looking into what what they say about cognitive psychology on these things and what the the neuro uh, people are saying at Karolinska, for example, that you cannot do two things at the same time. And yeah. so, so clearly, uh, it's the fact that your your girlfriend is better the, at this than you are. Mm -hmm. It's not a gender. thing. Thing. It's it's uh, simply a, a matter of training and concentration. I would would say in that sense. So I think that the the human ability is is basically the same. Mm -hmm. We can only perceive one thing at the time. But what you train is you train your ability to do task switching. 
to jump from right. one meeting to the other uh, and you actually you train how you l- listen sometimes there and you sample from that and you sample from that and so forth and if you're good at that you can do that without the other one noticing that you're actually listening to something but, else at the same I, time I'm I'm caught up uh, how you, I can prove that that works. Have you ever watched two movies at the same time? No. Or you watch a movie and I want to follow this uh, news uh, and then you then you sleep. This, I think this is in your brain what yeah. you're doing in the meetings. Yeah. You're sapping between two channels. I I uh, I've tried this actually, but I didn't think about it in this context. But but I I haven't watched two movies at the same time. But I've been watching a movie because my wife wanted to watch a movie. But on my telephone, I had an ongoing <laughs> football game that I was interested in, in following, and that wasn't a big problem because yeah, I mean whenever there's something interesting happening in the football game they they do a reshot of that afterwards and you can actually follow and, what's and, uh, happening and, and, and maybe that's more accurate because to have two movies you never seen it doesn't work but typically we're watching a movie and it's it's okay we're doing it in the family but i really want to look at the, the next uh, new snowboard binding yeah, yeah, <laughs> on <yeah>. youtube <laughs> exactly <laughs> and then you can sort of watch with one eye and, and and i think you to some degree you follow the general story Obviously, you're not really interested fully in the movie because if you get immersed in the movie, then you're gone into that. Like, but, but but I mean, cognitive psychologists have actually done experiments around this, which I think is quite fascinating. I mean, if you you have uh, if you uh, think about the Kahneman, the yeah. guy who yeah. won Nobel Prize in his book on thinking fast and slow, and and he's th- talking about different levels of of uh, sort of uh, information processing on this. So mm-hmm. so you could you could sort of have things that you you need your full mental capacity to understand and grasp, and, and those are typically things like reading and understanding a text or or making a decision or or uh, um, uh, making an, an arithmetic calculation. These are things that require uh, your full consciousness when you're doing Level that. Two, yeah. But then there's a number of things that you do automatically without sort of the the uh, uh, awareness being fully involved in that. So they made experiments on this. And, and one experiment that I usually do on my students as well is, is I, I ask them to calculate backwards in steps of three from 2000, like 2000, 1997, 1994, 1991, and so forth. And then just to be able to calculate that you sort of block that high level and then you show them different things and ask them what they remember so if you have written text they don't grasp that but if you have like colors or if you have moving items or 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 different things that are happening they actually capture that um, and uh, um, it's like um, another thing I do with my students uh, or did when we used to read paper newspapers. Uh, I asked them um, if they could tell me about a, an article they read in the newspaper. Uh, and people would say, yeah, I read this article about Putin and what he's doing now. And then I asked them, do you remember if it was on the left hand side or right hand <laughs> side? And they could always answer that. 
Was it a picture in it? Was it a big article, exactly. small? What did it look like? So all the spatial information around it, you take in automatically. Visual and spatial. Yeah, but, and spatial. but and colors and movements and stuff like that, you, you can sort of process that automatically. But but the, the thing of reading text and understanding that, you cannot do automatically. So what you do when you watch two movies is that you, you maybe uh, from time to time your focus is on one movie, but if you have a f an action sequence where they're fighting on the other one, you're actually grasping a lot of the things that are happening there, even if you're, you're, you put your focus on the dialogue in the other yes. so, one. So can you speak about Kahneman in you know, terms here, saying you know fast and slow, and perhaps you have the type one being more unconscious, like if, if you drive the car every day, yeah. I mean, you don't really think about it consciously, you just no, do no. it in some way. Yeah. But other things like calculating backwards is really hard. Yeah. And yeah, it requires yeah. your conscious you yeah. know, type two thinking to, to really kick in. Yeah, exactly. So is it what you, you're saying is basically that um, you can do at least those two different things at the same time, but it's hard to do both to type two things if you if no you i mean the the type two things yeah. there's sort of no known uh, uh capacity limitations yeah. so you could do many different things at the same time so for example i'm i'm uh, driving my car uh to the, the, this morning i drove my car to the railway station in Uppsala where i live yeah. i'm I have different trips tracks i could take to go to the railway station And I don't really remember which one I took. <laughs> exactly. But that doesn't mean that I'm a dangerous driver because right. if uh, a football comes bouncing out between cars there, I, I sort of uh, alert the high level of that. Mm. Now it's time to sort of react and do things. Right. So, kick in when yeah. So, so, but mm. I perceive everything that is happening. I perceive uh, what the weather is like. If it's raining, I perceive sort of many different aspects of, of this journey, but I don't remember which route I took. And that's kind of fascinating, I, I think, to, to but, think about in retrospect. But, but you said uh, you've actually been taking some of these uh, experiments that you highlighted on, on how to do different meetings into an, 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 actually an, an article you've been working on. Yeah, yes. So, so what, what, what's, how does it fit? What's the, major, what's the whole article about? And how does this context fit in the yeah. article? So, so the article, it's, it's almost past all of the review stages now. And I've done it together with two of my colleagues, Joachim Liljeskjöld and Stefan Stenbom at, at KTH. And what we wanted to do was that we wanted to sort of understand how the pandemic influenced us at the university. So we wanted to distinguish different phases of development. So we called the article the new, new normal. Um, because, and I'll explain what the new, new normal is <laughs> in that sense, but, but that's sort of the fifth of the, the five phases that we distinguished in that. that. So... The first phase that we could see is what we call the pre-pandemic phase. You know, you remember what we used to work, uh, how we used to work before the pandemic. And basically, even at my university, we had the situation where nobody could start a video meeting without <laughs> asking the professional secretary <laughs> to launch the, the meeting. That's the pre-pandemic. Oh, my God. <laughs> and, and actually, I, 
got an assignment from one of my bosses that I should look, look into more usable tools for starting video meetings <laughs> on that. But when the pandemic came, they they actually became they could you could see that they actually were quite uh, competent to start their own meetings. They they just had to learn so this by necessity. You have to learn, and then you sort. And the interesting thing was that this when happened very quickly. I I think it was a Thursday afternoon that we got a message from our boss saying that that in one week's time from now you we will close the university and you have to do everything uh, remotely and actually Monday morning everything uh, was done remotely and that's phase two uh, we we call call it then the emergency remote phase so so <laughs> you sort of you pulled out you put a lot of effort into sort of making everything work the way it should do you try um, to find what is the emerge urgency gaps that we where we have problems yeah, yeah. to fix I, I mean uh, uh, what happened was that we focused on the teaching we were saying that as a university the the single most important thing that needs to work is the teaching for our students so so if you have urgent research projects you you need to put them on hold so that at least you can see that the teaching works and people put a lot of extra effort into that and that phase actually didn't last long because this was a phase where people put a lot of efforts into it because we believed at that point that the pandemic would be over after Easter because yeah. that was what Trump believe, said yeah, yeah i believe in Trump as well yeah exactly mm-hmm. But then we we could then see the new phase happening, like uh, the first summer, uh, and we call that the new normal then, because then people started to talk about it, that maybe this is what the future will look like. We will work on distance uh, all, all the time, and we can enjoy that in a good way. And I, I had personally really uh, interesting experiences during the new normal phase, because uh, my wife was complaining that that I was getting a little bit fat, so so I. I think I gained ten kilos. Yeah. Did you start doing meetings on the walk? Yes, that, that's exactly what I did. So I had this. I, I bought a device. I should have brought it here, but that hangs the telephone in oh, front really? of me like this. That's so funny. So I could do uh, walking. It's it's bouncing a little bit, but it actually worked quite well. So I did. Amazing. I did twenty five thousand steps per day, four hours of meeting in in. in and I had this conversation with my wife for the whole pandemic and I didn't <laughs> I didn't take one meeting at the call and all my my, my colleagues did it and like you know you're just stupid and I said yes yeah. Yeah, I am yeah but you did it I I, I did it I th- thought Very it good. worked great and mm-hmm. and actually I've, I've heard uh, organizations now like the Swedish work environment authority for example they mm-hmm. they've actually been announcing that this meeting is a meeting you could take as a walking meeting we recommend it so so it's so it's sanctioned in us in a way from the, yeah, the leadership back to the principles and rules of engagement sort of thing if, yeah, yeah, if yeah. that is clear it's fantastic exactly but not everybody could do the, do it that way so so i mean there needs to be a minute taker that needs to sit in front of the computer but then you can take turns on doing doing things such as that and and so uh, and sometimes you simply had to say well i'm walking now we you you need to send me an email about what i need to do as an action based on these things and it, it worked fairly well and people were, were happy about that but then 
something strange happened because uh, when we were after the summer of the first pandemic year, you, you could sort of start feeling that, that um, uh, because I should say that uh, also I, I was facing that my working time during the emergency remote phase, that I could group things into three different categories, about a third each. So, the first third was sort of meetings that moved directly into Zoom because that was the tool that we used uh, or Teams uh, many times as well. The second category was meetings where they said that this is such an important meeting that we have a physical meeting, so we're going to postpone it. Uh, so then I got quite a bit of free free time, so to speak. And then the third thing, which is the most interesting one, was meeting that they simply cancelled because of the pandemic, and and they never came back. And you wondered, (laughs) were they really useful? Yeah, why did (laughs) I have them at all? But what happened then was that that given uh, this, the amount of meeting kept on increasing. So by the end of the summer, we uh, it was impossible to get caught, get uh, a call to somebody because everybody was in a Teams or Zoom meeting, uh, and and it tended to fill out. So from eight o'clock in the morning to to six o'clock in the I, afternoon, I remember this, and it was yeah. back to back, and like when do I go to the toilet? When <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but when uh, I have some food. exactly, but then I had people started. In the as well. Yeah. You did, did you? Yes. You, you muted the picture and yeah. you, you yeah. sort of... Uh, of uh, muted the picture, yeah. muted the sound until you're supposed to speak and then it's yeah. echoing in the toilet. Mm. Exactly. Been there? Yeah. Been there? <laughs> yes, I've been caught, you know, having meetings saying, yeah. are you in a toilet? You can hear the echo. Yeah, yeah. But, yes, but virtual backgrounds yes. work, oh, uh, worked oh, quite well. For the that. Yeah. But the interesting thing there was that we, we uh, um, uh, our boss said that we, we can't uh, continue like this because it's impossible so they said that as a work environment uh, uh, action, we decide that you cannot have one-hour meetings. You need to shorten the meetings to 45 hours so you get a bit of breaks. And this between. is funny. Uh, at Scania, in Outlook, the calendar bookings went from one hour to one exactly. hour to 50 minutes. So mm-hmm. when you booked the meeting in your calendar, it went to 50 minutes. It went to 45 minutes uh, with us. Oh. Yeah, but, but the interesting thing was that the secretary that books the meetings for the manager, simply to get all of the meetings in, your 45-minute meetings ca- became back-to-back. So you got more <laughs> meetings happening at, at the same they, they time. They game, they hacked the system. Yeah, yeah. So, so th- this was sort of... of uh, uh, Completely unusable that this thing happened. But so then, then we came to the last last phase in yes. in this because then, as sort of after the pandemic, when we first thought we would open up, there was sort of different views. As you remember, there were organizations like wasn't there LinkedIn or somebody that said that we we or Twitter that we're not supposed to have any offices at all. We you could just continue from home. And uh, at my university, they basically said that we want everybody to be back full time. We need to see you because we've lost so many uh, good things during this period. So, so the, the this new new normal, which I claim then, is that we really need to think carefully and strategically what we want the new new normal to be. Do we want it to be sort of a, 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 a going back to what it was before the pandemic, or do we want it to be a hundred? percent digital 
No, I, I think we should aim for what I call then the thoughtful blended phase <laughs> where we sort of uh, will realize that hybrid is going to be the new new normal and that we design our meeting rooms, our digital and physical meeting rooms to harmonize with this way of, of uh, working in a sense. And that's sort of the, the main message of, of this paper. And then we'd looked at a lot of data on on uh, actually both the the number of meetings uh, number of zoom meetings that we have uh, from this period that yeah, you could pull the stats out of the yeah, yeah yeah we have the stats so it's it went from before the pandemic we had like th- a thousand hours a week of of uh, zoom meetings and then just a few months uh, later we had 150,000 <laughs> hours of zoom meetings per week so so it increased tremendously and we could track the Wi-Fi usage at the campus, then we could see and, and measure that together with each other. We could track the the uh, uh, use of the learning management systems, and, and we could see a lot of quantitative data out of that. And the interesting thing is that there's uh, similar research that Microsoft has done on uh, the use of Teams. So, right. so they've actually calculated what contribution this has to the carbon footprint in terms of how much uh, time you save by sort of not commuting anymore. Or um, right. they actually claim that the average length of meetings went from, from 35 minutes to 45 minutes instead. Uh, during the first seven months of the pandemic that the number of emails increased with, I believe it was 150% or something like that during this period. So there's a lot of interesting data that you can look at and to study on that. And that's basically what we did. Yeah, I remember you speaking about something else and I'm, I think we should have a separate topic later, but <laughs> the the work environment obviously has been greatly influenced by the pandemic and really forced us to change. And and not the least the education in general. I think it was the Minister of Education in Sweden that said, you know, that it's amazing how the pandemic were able to in months digitalize education. Uh, compared to what we've been trying to do for years. I'm yeah. paraphrasing now, but but still, you know, if you really pushed to the wall, it's surprising how quickly you can transform, you know, how you work, right? It is, it is. Cool. And uh, and I think it's uh, interesting. Uh, a person at my job that um, says he uh, that I can't quote him on this, mm-hmm. <laughs> so I won't say who he was, but he said that, if I knew that this was what it would take to make digitalization happen, I would have started a pandemic a long time ago. <laughs> Please quote him. That was really a small statement. Now, but it's a bit sad that, that we need some kind of emergency for you know, proper transformation to happen. Yeah. But but, but it, 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 it's the same in business or anything like that. It, if you don't have a, a burning pain, mm. change is almost impossible. Yeah. Why waste a good crisis? <laughs> Why waste a good crisis is exactly what this is all about. I hope we don't get to the conclusion that we need more crisis. I think we've <laughs> no, had but, enough, you know. But, but, and but, I thought, you know, we, we had a pandemic, uh, you know. Uh, but it, but, it's, but, and, but, but know, in some ways it's really sad, right? Because we have proven what we're able to do in terms of innovation speed. Mm. In what can sometimes be seen as old bureaucratic institutions or big old companies. And then when we come back to normal, like we, 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 for some reason it doesn't work. 
and 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 we had I have I have so many I have, have some very beautiful examples of this also in in Scania how we had sort of very clear understanding for what we called was a golden arrow mm-hmm. something that needed to be fixed uh, you know if, if it was as simple as uh, you know understanding the supply and demand or whatever reporting mm-hmm. and whatever it was and then people just come together and then the right super team is put on the case and and we learn and we let them work on what they are supposed to do and they can do it in days and then we go back to something that you know to to realize what we did in days is years mm. and how can we not sort of figure this back into our operating model so to speak so mm. we can be a little bit faster at least mm. Mm. it's interesting isn't it it, it is and, and i think that we're actually reflecting too little upon upon the the ways in which we're working and living our lives and and there's so many things we can learn about this and uh, i actually made an interesting study at kth also at, at the very end of the pandemic before we started bringing people back where i um, asked people how they perceive their homework environment and uh, um, um interestingly enough the the uh, how people perceive their work uh, environment at home was uh, had a direct correlation to the number of square meters they lived on so so uh, so so and, and so for sure i mean the youngest phd students are the, those facing the biggest challenges those uh, having people saying that the well well me and my boyfriend takes turn on who's to sit in the bathtub today <laughs> when they're working uh, but uh, also i gathered the photographs and i hope to be able to publish that at some point but i need to ask permission from people but i gather photographs of different work situations so i got a 400 photographs of their home work situations so i i, I could send in the yeah, yeah. Of they how submitted they work them from to home. me yeah exactly oh. And I could see, uh, or, and and we then grouped these into categories. So so we got sort of personas of types working at home. So either you could be the the uh, the type of person that is the flexible one that uh, you have a laptop, you pack it up when you start working in the morning, and then you close it and put it away for lunch, and then you open it again. This was a clear category of people. We have these with trying to to build sort of standing things where they put uh, boxes or chairs on top of tables to get this working we got a separate category of of uh, uh, ironing board users uh, <laughs> that had uh, we even got one person that submitted uh, that they had double ironing boards uh, to to get some depth into their their they have um, the the laptop on the ironing board yeah to get the right height to, to get get to a standing uh, thing mm. yeah. and then we had i mean we had those that made professional uh, ergonomic work environments at home and we also had the sort of really professional <laughs> ones that provided like lamps and <laughs> and uh, good cameras to make good uh, right. recordings <laughs> and things on on this and then we also could distinguish the social category those that that even if it was a pandemic they they needed people around them to work so they gathered three or four people together right. in one person's home and and kind of sat there and, and was so working in the same same room so so it was quite interesting to and this we could tell only so simply out of the pictures. personas and how we work at home yeah 
So what type of personas are you when you work at home? Oh. Are you the one lying in the sofa with your laptop in your knee? Or I, I, actually, yes. But I also, also sat in coffee shops and yeah. worked because I, I really enjoyed these social aspects of that. Exactly. Oh, I, I have it. I, I can. Oh, we can go deep on this. Because <laughs> on the one hand side, I'm the guy who can start up meetings when I'm still in bed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we, and you can you can flip that to sitting in the in the in, in, in even the, the toilet right yeah oh, that's that's <laughs> you, that's yours but no comments and then and then you know in the sofa and all that but then one thing I did was I actually sorted out a frigge board mm-hmm. and I built a very professional working space seven and a half square meters my little man cave. Yeah. And I actually did, uh, I'm not going to go into detail, but I, I put some effort into building something which is a professional office. Mm. So you went out there for your working hours so, and so you avoided I, I am, bringing your laptop I had back to go. Home. I had to go to Dalarna to get a pair of uh, uh, classic clogs uh, mm. with, uh, you know. <laughs> kurbits. You, kurbits. <laughs> yes, you know exactly what I was talking about. I have them as I well. I get a pair of Kurbits clogs yeah. and then they're, they're done to work in the snow, you know, on my, to my office. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I went bananas. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah, too many interesting topics here. Uh, we have forgotten <laughs> an important part. Introduce the guest. <laughs> we should. So, with that, very welcome here, Jan Gulan. Uh, <laughs> yes. It's uh, actually very nice to have you here in real life for once. We've met each other a number of times, but usually in the last couple of years during remote meetings, yeah. then, of course. You look better in 3D. <laughs> Is that a compliment? Yeah. Uh, I, I, I must <laughs> say, you, you look you look fresh. You, know, you look fresher than uh, a year a, back. I have an AI enhanced um, version of myself. Where, virtually, I think I would look better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, but thanks for the compliment. But but you know you've been doing so many things. You've been part of AI Sweden and uh, Swedish AI agenda and, and so many other uh, aspects. And and I, actually, in my view, I think you're one of the most influential people. When it comes to digitalization in Sweden, I mean, you are, for one, you know, vice president of KTH, one of the best, uh, if not the best, uh, universities in, in Sweden. The best one is Linköping. <laughs> um, and you're also a professor of human-computer interactions, that, which is interesting and connected, of course, as well. You're also advising the Swedish government in matters of digitalization. And and you're obviously conducting research, as we just heard now for a long time, in how to do you know, work in a more digital environment, which I think we have so much to learn on uh, in, in how to adapt to the situation that we have in this world. So, yeah, too, too many interesting topics to, to speak about, but I hope we can go deeper into that soon. Yeah. But before we go there, perhaps you can just give a very, very brief introduction to who is Givlan. <laughs> <clears throat> uh, it's the question of how brief you would want me to be then, but but sometimes I, I actually like to start a bit early to, to explain how I could end up in this crazy situation that I'm in, because I 
I started out uh, being sort of very interested in schoolwork when I was really a kid. So, so I, I was extremely interested in mathematics early. Uh, so I remember that my mother and father was called to school when I went to third grade because, uh, no, when I went to first grade, because I'd actually finished the mathematics books from third grade already and they didn't know what to do with me at that stage. And, and so this interest in mathematics kept me going. So at, uh, when I went in eighth grade, I started studying at the university. Oh, and really? and uh, when I went in ninth grade, I, I did my, uh, what's that called in English? Prio, uh, on, <laughs> on, on uh, internship. Uh, an internship as a professor in mathematics at Uppsala University. Really? Uh, so so it, was, it was kind of interesting. That's too. an awesome uh, internship, by yeah. the way. But but then uh, the you. Swedish uh, university system didn't allow me to do any of the exams because I didn't have a degree in Swedish and English. Okay. So I couldn't do uh, mathematics exams that I wanted to do. So I sort of became one of these people that, that sort of... Uh, uh, went completely berserk out of this. So since I knew all the mathematics, I didn't go to class of that. And I started uh, sort of being a more of a problematic kid and mm -hmm. dealing more with theater and music and the things that I love to do. So I've done a lot of that. So at the age of 18, I was clear on my future career that I wanted to be an actor and a director and, and was applying for theater schools. And I... <clears throat> Sorry, I, I still believe that that's my most, my biggest asset that I've done a lot of theater and studying these things. And, In what and way? Can you just elaborate a bit more? Why is that useful these days? Because everything is about theater, you know. You you sort of read people's faces. Mm -hmm. You know how you can express yourself. And psychology uh, part of it. Yeah, well, it's 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 a mixture of both the psychology and the the uh, visualization of it. So how you appear on things. I I remember when I went to one of these business schools, uh, senior uh, management education. So I got a teacher who was a former uh, speechwriter for for George Bush the yeah. the father and and he was a specialist in communication he said that 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 uh, Jan because abroad they call me Jan he said well you're in, uh, unique there's only 3% of the world's population that that uh, is as you are and what's that he said well you speak in three dimensions and i said well what does that mean Well, he said, and I don't know if people will see this if, if they listen to it, but he says that, that 97% of the people say the world is round and they do a two-dimensional circle like this. But I say the world is round and I use the, the room to sort of ah, make yeah. use of so this. The body language is more 3D. Yeah, exactly. So, so what I've learned over the years is, is both how I can use my voice, how I can use my body language, how I can interpret people when I speak to them and so forth on that and, and to sort of so learn to become more convincing in a way which I've I have to give an anecdote about this because I think it's so amusing. And I remember the old Spotify days, and we had big offices in both Stockholm in Sweden and in US in New York. And we even had people working in the exact same project at some point. And then we have these kind of weekly things, meetings and whatnot. And we had a Swedish person coming up speaking about, you know, what the progress was in the last week. And he said, yeah, it didn't go that well. We did some progress, but, you know, we had a lot of challenges here and there and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, some progress. And then the American guy 
guy came up and, and, and he basically said, it's been the most amazing week ever. Yeah. We've done so much progress. It's, the, the possibilities of this project will go bananas and it will be amazing. And, and they worked on the same project. <laughs> and and I, I'm not sure if, I mean, for one, I think people, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, Gulan, but uh, I mean, for one, they teach rhetorics, I think, more in American schools than they do in Swedish schools. But the ability to to have the power of communication just mm. for reading it, but also being able to communicate to others in an efficient way, yeah, I think is so important and something that's missing today in our it is. current education, right? Definitely. And I, I basically, I think that the drama should be one of the core yeah. subjects in, in right. school early on right. because right. you you use that such a, a lot to improve, uh, I mean, a manager uh, employee situation, mm. for example, you can make a lot of use of that type of skills. But, uh, but what's the statistics here? You know, how much is verbal communication and how much percentage is other types of communication in order to convey a message? I mean, like there's done a lot of research here that obviously if you, if you have tools to address your communication, not only verbally mm. or like in, in uh, what you're saying, but how you're saying it and how you're doing it. And, and, and someone says, oh, this, this is more than 50% of, mm. the, of how you get your message across. Obviously then to do, to work, uh, have experience on how to use your full body as, as, as an actor is trained to do, mm. must mm. be brilliant. I, I mean, uh, I'm guy guessing again here, but, <laughs> but I, I think that 80% is body language and, and 20% yeah. is, is uh, what you express with words. Mm. But I mean, I've also done uh, a lot of sort of singing and choir and stuff like that. And then, then you sort of, and, and music and stuff like that. And, and then you sort of also know that the way to be clear on what you're speaking about is, for example, if you make sure that every sentence you say, you make sure that the last letter of each word is heard. So you think... That it is important that uh, if you do, do that, you, you, you sort of, that, then it becomes completely clear to everybody because I, you, we usually swallow a lot of the And, and I, have, I have a great story on this. One of my first like bigger gigs as a moderator, uh, this is uh, when I was quite young and we had a, what is called the sales conference and we had hired a circus mm. and I was sort of moderating the, the whole, uh, the whole conference. And because I was fairly new at presenting on a bigger stage, I mean, like it's different to do 10 people, 100 people. Mm. Now we're talking 1,000. So at that point in time, we, we had a coach, a, a rhetorics coach, mm. like a friend, a, a friend to the firm. Mm. And what we really did was to work with sort of tonation, where's your voice, yeah. like singing techniques. Using your stomach to using speak. Using your yeah, stomach. Exactly. Or, and, then, and then purely if you're into music, where do you pause? How do you do crescendo? Yeah. Where, where do you put the pianissimo into it? Exactly. And that's amazing, right? Because now we're getting to, the, this is the hardcore message. This is how the voice is used in the yes. message. And mm. now we get to the 80% yeah, of the exactly. body language. Yeah. So how much is verbal, verbal 
core content and how is much is delivery. That's the core co- topic yeah. here. And I mean, there, there's many aspects you could add to this. I mean, my background is also that I'm I'm from citizenship. I'm Norwegian, and, oh. and we have another way of oh, speaking and using our tone more. and music when we speak in a different way. So I think that I've inherited uh, quite a bit of that as well. But just to to finish off the story of who I am in this, so so. Uh, after a while of applying to to uh, these uh, theater schools and and realizing that that I maybe was too young or or maybe not good enough to be admitted I found out that maybe it's not such a wise thing to have mathematics as your hobby and theater as your profession so I switched those ones around and that's and, a good joke by the way and well it, it's clearly what happened so I I started uh, on the engineering physics program uh, in Uppsala and I did that not because I was completely interested in engineering physics but somebody said that that was the most difficult you could do so I thought that that was kind of challenging and then I went into that but I still was passionate about theater so I was a really lousy student so I barely passed the courses. You had too much fun in Uppsala that's what you're exactly. saying. Exactly and I was playing a lot of theater. You were part of the old specs at the place and everything. Exactly oh. and I, I did a lot of those things and, and I still continue to do actually uh, on, on this because I, I like it and I think it's so rewarding to, to work with these things so all of a sudden when I found myself that I was out of study loan from from CSN. I got the advantage of being Norwegian, so I actually used the Norwegian <laughs> loan, the custom, uh, uh, and they don't have any requirements that you need to take a certain amount of credits every year to be able to get your, better. Your, so so I, I could sort of play around a little bit more and and but then eventually I found myself I need to sort of earn a living to do this and and so I Basically, I went to my uh, the teacher at the university that I liked the best, that I thought was the best performer. And I said to him that, do you need any help with the teaching? And so, so because I thought that that was the best way to sort of stay within engineering physics, but still uh, use my theater ambitions in that. So I became a teacher. And uh, then after a few years, they started asking me about my PhD thesis. And I, I wasn't really aware that I was enrolled in the PhD education. I <laughs> thought I was well, a, a practicality teacher. practicality that he had to solve it like that to put you there in order for you to teach. Yeah. But you forgot about the core topic. Exactly. <laughs> but, but then after a while, I mean, I found a really, uh, afterwards, I can say I found a really interesting subject for my PhD thesis. So, so we, we were doing action research. We were helping the Swedish National Tax Board, Skatteverket, with their digitalization. We should call it that now, but they didn't know the word then. They said datorisering, computerization <laughs> instead. And, what year uh, was this approximately? This was, I started uh, with Skatteverket in 1994. Mm. And, you know, at that point, they were working with still the the, the income tax declaration on paper, and, and the case handlers were sort of flipping through these yeah. and, and trying to make decisions upon this. And, and I think and the tax authorities are one of the best authorities that we have in terms of yeah. digitalization. And, and there, there's just a coincidence that I was a researcher there and working with these things from 94 <laughs> until 2004. I was actually there yeah. for 10 years in this process. So in 
2004, they had completely digitalized what they were doing and also done this in a very brave way, I would say, and, and actually improved quite well in that. So, so I had the opportunity of, of following that as an action research case and helping them with everything from usability evaluations all the way to strategy. But, uh, and, and yet before we, I mean, just to, to clarify the term, perhaps you should explain what action, action research really is as well. Yes, uh, action research is a particular research methodology that means that I'm not only interested in knowledge, yeah. I'm interested in change. So I actually participate in the change processes happening at the the client, so yeah. to speak. So you didn't I, just observe, you actually were participating. Yeah, so I researched upon something where I'm myself acting, which is uh, sort of problematic also from an, a methodological point of view and often sometimes criticized because of that. So, so I was there working with the change processes. Um, in the beginning, we were hired by the HR department. So we came in from the work environment right. issues into this. And they said, well, w our staff has problems with the computers they use now because we've started, we, we acquired this system that scans all the documents and we, we uh, try to see them on the screen, but the scanner is so bad. So we need to sort of, of uh, enlarge it so that we see sort of a third of uh, mm -hmm. an A4 page and then you scroll to the side to read all uh, uh, all of this and, and it was and you couldn't print it so that they could have a look at it but it was amazing because somebody else working in a completely different place could see the same yeah. uh, document and you could speak to each other but then uh, I was there and studied how this affected the, the uh, workers' uh, work situation and how we could improve their computerized uh, um, uh, tools in that. So it's more from usability point of view, <coughs> not, really, not really from a technolo technological point of view, or exactly from from usability point of view. So so the first time uh, we started, they said, well this project failed, can you tell us why? <laughs> and, and so we started evaluating things. And then I said, well, maybe you should bring in, bring us in a little bit earlier, not evaluate when things have gone wrong. So we started doing design mm -hmm. with them. And when doing design, we found out that, boy, we need to know much more about the work that you do. So we'd started doing quite a bit of ethnographic field work and, and trying mm -hmm. to live with them. Then we discovered that that to be able to do good design uh, in such a professional work environment, you, you actually need to involve the users much more. So we started doing very much participatory design where the, the tax handlers themselves were actually designing their, their, their new systems. And at that point, we thought that the system developers would really hate this because they would think that that this can't be a, a, a good thing. They're taking all the fun away from what we're doing. But they actually loved it. They said, well, boy, this is the first time somebody has actually said what they needed. And previously, they had been given like the requirement specification right. to, to the users. And, and uh, couldn't you have a look at this if this looks okay? And they have a look at it and say, well, well yeah. And then they develop a system and then they say, well, we can't use this. But you agreed to the requirement specification. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but we didn't understand what it was like. So we used a lot of prototypes, so sort of mock-ups, uh, paper-based drawings of, of the things that, that we were working with.
But and then eventually, uh, when we came to the last few years, then we were working with the uh, senior management on the strategies and uh, on the system development processes. And, and at that po point, I don't know if you remember, but there was a fashionable process called the Rational Unified Process. Yeah, that everybody Rational Rules. Yeah. And so we worked on getting usability into that because it, it just didn't exist into that. So that was quite it's exciting. Very, you know, very tempted to go into the whole, you know, agile <laughs> development phase. But I think I'll add that as a topic later and, and see, you know, what your thoughts are about But the reflection is here that some of the stuff that you worked on and, and what is interesting when you come into the same topic as a consultant or a mm. vendor can help with... And how obvious it becomes when we talk about it like this and still mm. we're not doing it. No, 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 exactly. <laughs> but, but I mean, we're doing things better now than we did beforehand. But the amazing thing was that just to bring in the topic you just wrote yeah. down, when, when you're then approaching agile methodologies, you would think that, okay, now usability will be there. Mm. But it isn't. It's, it's still missing, uh, in a sense, but, the but, focus but on I, that. But I think this is such a pre, uh, misconception. Oh, we become agile now. Mm. Well, that is one toolbox. Mm. Customer centricity or UX is another toolbox. Mm -hmm. Design thinking is the third. And then we can come into the technical topics. I mean, like... So or it's like we get so hyped into... Uh, we well, let's have that as a topic later. And I, I just want <laughs> to try to finish a bit of... This yeah, you're right, well, you're right. Right? I, I agree. And, uh, okay, you, you said you moved into engineering and, and basically you started also doing a PhD then, yeah. more or less uh, involuntarily? or un Well, un well or by accident, I, 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 okay. I say. Yeah. And, and I mean, as part of your PhD, you do courses, right? Yeah. So, so the majority of my courses since I was an engineer was psychology and design. So it, mm. it was more a social science a PhD in, in that sense. Yeah. So I did that and, and got my PhD in 1996, which was two years into the tax board. So I continued eight years after my PhD with yeah. the tax board uh, after yeah. that. Interesting. And interestingly enough, uh, when I graduated with my PhD, I didn't know that I could stay there for many years and work with them. So, so in the interaction with the tax board, I, I said that you really should hire somebody that works with these things. Mm -hmm. So I wrote an ad for uh, a job, uh, yeah. thinking that this is a job I could take uh, myself. And <laughs> uh, so, so I claim that I wrote Sweden's first UX oh. ad on, on nice. that because this was in 1996 and I have, have so far not found an older UX role in, in Sweden. Was it called that. UX as well? No, it was called Usability Designer at that point. Uh, UX came 2000 uh, or 1999. And when UX came, I was extremely critical to this because for, for me, it was just the same thing as usability, but mm -hmm. just in new wrapping. But yeah. then I've, I've sort of reworked that in a bit. But the tax board uh, didn't accept my proposal for that so I continued doing research but then accidentally a year or so later I, I discovered that they had advertised for usability designer <laughs> and they actually had used quite a lot of the text that I wrote for that ad but at that point I was too busy in in uh, research so I didn't apply for that but in my job with the tax board we worked as mentors for their first uh, UX person in that mm -hmm. sense uh, so so I sort of claimed to be be sort of a father of of uh, the the UX 
context in in uh, those kind of businesses. But for sure, there's probably many who claim that they were self-taught uh, UX people working in that fashion. And that. What happens then? Well, then uh, I kept on doing that, and I I uh, found that one of the most influential ways to improve the world, because that's sort of my mission, is uh, through teaching and uh, also with my acting background. So I I really thought that we should actually have a UX uh, education. Right. So I was part of formulating the the UX program that we had at Uppsala University when I worked there because I did uh, my first 25 professional years I did at Uppsala University. Mm. Um, so I designed such an education and became uh, director of undergraduate studies, studio director uh, in in uh, that and, and worked with such Was things. Was called uh, UX at that time? Or? No, we called it usability designer and we wrote a lot of papers about that and my PhD students were sort of developing that because I had many PhD students who were active in industry and working with these things on a consultancy basis. So so we were really action researchers trying this one out uh, were together with them. Cool. And then uh, sort of in, uh, I think it was in 2003-04, I um, applied for and got a grant from the SSF, the Swedish Strategic Research Foundation. They had a mobility grant, which was a way to sort of fund people in academia working in industry. So I, I got full pay on one condition, and that was that I wouldn't set my foot in the university. I needed to be in industry. Okay. So, so, so I went to a consultancy company saying that you don't have to pay, pay my salary, but I would want to work for you. Uh, that's, uh, a that's, an that's a reverse uh, to many grants. Right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they still have these mobility grants, and they're quite uh, popular. So I went to... to uh, I would uh, like to understand more about this. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. They, they have the, the opposite as well, so that people in industry could apply for the same mobility grant to work in academia. So, so this is a way to get more of the mobility between academia and know industry. It is, and it's a great grant that they've had for a long time. So I got this, and I worked with a, a company that doesn't exist anymore. Uh, was called IT Architekterna at the, mm -hmm. the time, and uh, Frontwalker. And uh, uh, there, I as as they couldn't sort of bill my hours because they didn't pay my hours. I was sort of working with their own business development and working up processes for, for usability. And we built a usability team of six people within the company and did consultancy on, on, uh, on that and uh, um, sort of got more and more interested in collaborating with the industry and not only with public authorities that, uh, that I did from before on. But in 2005, I realized that, well, now I've been at Uppsala University 25 years and I'm still in the room beside my former supervisor. So, so, and he said that uh, I've always should take over after him, but I, I didn't see that coming within soon because he wasn't that much older than me. So I, I actually started applying for other jobs and, right. and um, I, I got the, uh, I was ranked number one from, for the professorship at KTH, which I was, uh, Actually, a little bit surprised over because I thought I had many um, even better competitors in that, but maybe they saw something there. So, so I, I got a position there at KTH, and then I professorship in what in human computer interaction. Yes. Uh, Can you just very briefly define you know what is human computer? 
Well, it's yeah, it, it's the the study of the interaction between human beings and, and computerized systems, in a sense. So it can be anything from from uh, operating a, a nuclear power plant to operating your mobile phone, uh, basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, also it, it's defined as, as also studying major phenomena surrounding this. So, so it could sort of be the influence it has on the society or what the processes, uh, software engineering processes for usability would look like and so forth. So it, it is a broad subject in that. And, and nowadays it's actually part of the computer science curriculum that you, that you teach on this. And uh, if you look into, for example, ISO standards that I've also been working uh, for 25 years with it's uh, it's uh, belongs under ergonomics so it has a heritage to human factors and ergonomics uh, traditions to work with these kind of things but I've always seen myself as the, the bridge between the user side the HR side and the the hardcore technology side on this and, and trying to get uh, users to be more understandable of the uh, software development and their missions and then uh, uh, on the opposite side also the getting the de developers to to understand and, and want to socialize with and get to know uh, users in in that sense awesome so then and then you stayed for like i'm trying to move on because we have so many yeah yeah, yeah. That, but a, a quick uh, yes. a quick guide through that so when i started at kth uh, i was also offered to be the uh, manager of the group so and i've always been interested in leadership yeah. so i went into leadership and I did some kind of tough changes as a leader there. So I was immediately uh, promoted to be the dean, which was moving from uh, being a boss of, of uh, 70 people to being the boss of 400 people instead. In so, and what's the definition of a dean? If dean you... is a head of a school. Uh, and which is a school within KTH. Yeah, and at that time KTH had 10 schools, which meant that I was like a rector for the, the a tenth of KTH uh, basically, I, I was in charge of, of uh, economy, of staff, and, and of all the things you're you're in charge. So, so of. you you are the PNL owner of a school, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> in but, business terms. Yeah, yeah, uh, more or less so. <laughs> and then uh, I did that for seven years, and then we did a big organizational change, and then. Uh, I said that uh, um, I, uh, I I've been working on the side with this issue of digitalization, and you've gotten to know me as a big critic towards uh, the inability for our university to digitalize itself. So so therefore, what's the best way of silencing a critic? Well, you make him responsible for yeah, it. So I proposed so I proposed that I would be in charge of the digitalization of KTH. I became vice president for digitalization and that's the position i i so is have. that the only uh, do you have a, a dual position now is that a full-time job in itself uh, well it's a 70 percent part of my job but i my basic position is i'm a professor in human computer interaction so i i will always have the opportunity to go back to that 
But then, then maybe more interesting, I mean, at the university, you're always allowed to have side activities as well. So in 2012, I had a friend who, who said that, yeah, you should follow me to this seven seminar that is happening on, on uh, at the government. And I, well, what's that? Well, it's the uh, IT minister that's going to present uh, a, a sort of a new digital agenda that they're talking about and i thought that that was fun and and so i went there and they were about 30 40 people in the room and then again i used my theatrical skills yeah. so i got to two chances of saying things and i managed to say things that maybe pulled down a few laughs and and uh, mm. sort of became something memorable so so not long after i i got uh, uh, an invitation from Anna Karin Hatten, the Minister of, of uh, uh, IT and Energy, which it actually back, was back then as well, to have uh, to be in charge of the the newly established uh, Commission for Digitalization, which was in 2012, uh, an assignment that was to sp supposed to last for three and a half years. Uh, so I got to employ seven people that worked with me on that, and then it was prolonged a year. And we, we sort of made like, I think it was seven different uh, SOU, Statens Offentliga Utredningar, based on, on that. And actually wrote the draft of what is now the Swedish digitalization strategy as, as well on that. And based on that, I was invited then to come back to the Digitalization Council, which is more like an advisory group to the minister. So now I'm awaiting my eighth minister uh, hopefully being uh, launched You're soon. wearing the mouth, right? Yeah, I'm being, <laughs> I, I have been. Eight ministers representing three different political parties in, in that. So they've been a really And the digitalization job. position has shifted a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I mean the, it's always been a, a small part position for me, uh, but uh, nowadays it's, I mean, we meet the minister uh, uh, three or four times a year to talk about uh, and provide guidance and inputs on, on various different topics. Uh, but frankly, now for the last minister, which I think was one of the best, he was just caught up in energy crisis. So, so he just didn't have time for digitalization. So, and so that's the point, right? So the, the, the digitalization minister, so to speak, has always had a second or third or fourth yeah, other topics. Yeah, so, so uh, uh, um, uh, we had one that was uh, housing and digitalization, yes, exactly. and we've, we've had different variants of Energy, that. housing, energy back again, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, and then we've also, I mean, they belong to the Ministry of the Enterprise, and then they belong to the Ministry of the Infrastructure and, and things like that. So so we have this silo structure of the government that uh, is maybe a bit problematic. In well, you don't need to answer this. <laughs> uh, do you think there is a better home for digitalization? Uh, you know, you know, if you look at it rationally, logically. So, what what subjects do uh, receive attention in media? Well, it's subjects where you have a, a conflict, where there's parties that believes completely different things, and I think that 
one of the problems with digitalization is that there's just not a party that is against digitalization. So therefore, it's not debated that much. It's uh, It was debated quite a bit in relations to digitalization of schools, because we've had ministers who've been sort of against digitalization in schools. You remember a minister of, of education that said we... we we're going to forbid iPads in schools and, and things like that, which I think wasn't sort of the most progressive decisions to make, to put it mildly on this. So, so, so then it's, it's, um, that's more or less one of the few fields where it happens. E-health and, and digitalization in such cases have been, been it as well. But when it comes to the discussion of the lacking uh, politics in, in healthcare, it's, it's not, been about digitalization no, it's, it's been other, about other, other topics. things so a problem that sweden perhaps or politicians is not focusing that much uh, or as much much as, as you should on digitalization is that it's everyone thinks the same everyone is for it I, uh, and we need to have some more conflicts about it yeah right? exactly so <laughs> can you create a conflict <laughs> no because because it doesn't shift if i'm really cynical it doesn't shift voters because if you all think the same on this topic that's not where they sort of where i can put a position in, mm. in for my mm. f- so it's it's very interesting yeah because all of a sudden we are missing maybe so, some of the most important investments and how we are yeah. dealing with that mm. and how it can maybe be a way to release other Gordian knots, so mm. to speak, in energy and et cetera, et cetera. But, but because we are not debating it, we are not becoming literate on the topic enough no. because we don't need, we, ha- we have other more pressing topics to be literate and, and argumentative about. Yeah. I don't know. So is, is that what, you, so this is an interesting topic. This is very interesting. I haven't thought about it like you said it right now. No, I, I mean, um, you, you could think about this in many different ways, but, but I think that it's not that digitalization doesn't have a direction in politics. I think that it has. I mean, we have a, a digital agenda uh, or, or digitalization strategy right now that is... But we don't have an AI strategy. At least. No. We have some kind of guidelines. Yeah, but but maybe we're approaching something. I mean, with the work with the AI agenda in, in that sense was an attempt to do it like that. But if you look at the digitalization agenda, they put out one clear goal that Sweden should be the best country in the world to use the opportunities of digitalization. And I think that... To use. Yeah, to use, exactly. exactly. Not not to develop, but to use this. And, and I think that that actually was an interesting goal uh, that was put because at the time we were... Uh, very highly ranked on the, for example, the World Economic Forum's networked readiness index and so forth. Let's go there for a second, I think. It's interesting, you know, how do you rank Sweden uh, in terms of uh, digitalization compared to other countries? Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, one, I've been looking at several different sort of rankings on this and, and the, this networked readiness index in, in 2012 or 11, I think we were uh, number one on the list and then we dropped and then it became like uh, 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 a way to hit the minister. So, so we're doing worse than before. 
And the interesting thing then was that, well, you have a competition of 300 countries. And, and if you're one or three, well, what's the, the big problem in a sense? And I would actually, being a Norwegian interested in skiing, I would say that, well, maybe sometimes you should uh, lie in the air behind the leading one. And then just before you, you uh, pass the goal line, you pass mm-hmm. before them. But... But in a sense here, you could see that that this was uh, uh, um, a situation where you could use the data to to actually come up with uh, measures that you need to do. So all of these rankings they have uh, um, they have uh, visualized their data in many different ways. So so I at the time I looked at the data on, uh, for example, education. It mm-hmm. turned out that we were the second country in the world in the network readiness index. But it, when it came to the quality of the math and science education, we were on place 34, I think, in the world, just right. after Bahrain. So the second when it comes to math and the STEM education? No, no, no. We were second in the aggregated of all aspects. Ah, okay. But then if you look at, okay, how come we're not the first one you should know, look at, which mm-hmm. one is the, the sort of... Yeah. What uh, pulls you down. Yeah, what pulls you down in that. And... and uh, Particularly, it was in, in relations to education. Finland is usually on top of these lists. And, and um, so I actually took this information where we were just behind Bahrain and I showed it to the... the uh, Bahrain is not high up in the list, right? Uh, no, uh, but they higher than us when it came to, to uh, education. Uh, in some fields, right? In, in qu- uh, math and science. Math and science. Which is STEM, kind of broad STEM, in a yeah. sense. STEM related. Yeah. Yeah. So I was showing this to the minister saying, this is where you should put your efforts, right? This awesome. is where where things need to be done. And he just looked at the list and saying, which country was after Sweden on the list? It was the United States. And he said, well, we win over the United States, <laughs> at oh. least. That was his statement. Finding excuses, I hear. But, but, I think the problem here was that the the, uh, the silo structure of the government. So the Minister of Digitalization was sort of residing under the Department of uh, the Ministry of the Enterprise, but the Education was under the Ministry of Education, which at the time was not only a, a different minister but a minister from a different political party. So so. There was also this sort of party politic fight over these things. So, so not much happened in that. And so, so with that as an argument, we were saying that we really need to do things about education. And interestingly enough, I, I went to a seminar at the government where they were talking about um, the future of education. And, and at that time, uh, the, 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 the education minister at the time said, well, uh, I had a side talk with her and she said that, that uh, can't you create a new AI education? How long time would it take for you to create an AI education? And I said, well, give me some time and go back and investigate it. And I went back to my university and asked my AI professors there and said, well, what can we do and how long time would it take? And they said, well, if we get about two years to investigate this, we can come up with a new engineering degree in AI, and that's going to be a five-year civil engineering uh, AI uh, specialization. So in seven years, the first could graduate on that. And then I went back to the minister and said, well, 
I've now talked to my staff and they say that that if we if you give us the assignment now we can start an education in seven years and then she said what I wanted you to be ready before the election <laughs> and this was in May and the election was in September so 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 that tells you a little bit about the perspectives yeah. of politics that that the single most important thing of politics is winning the election yeah. right so so and and these long term things weren't really but, working but it goes in many topics that the long term things is really putting is being heard. Yeah, yeah. And there's so many debates going on right now, I think, in, yeah. in relation to the election we just had, how obvious it is that, that we are lacking in putting focus and, and stamina on longer goals. Yeah. And we can talk about many different topics here, but let, let's take digitalization as, and not go anywhere else. This is a problem. Mm. It becomes a real problem because we are only investing in stuff that we can show results in, mm. in short time spans. And we know some of the stuff we do it needs compounding effects needs proper foundation and needs uh, stamina over a long time mm, mm. we're fundamentally changing paradigms in some yeah. areas yeah. and this is now you know how to get that on the agenda i mm. think that's a very gordian knot to solve yeah yes we have many gordian knots here today <laughs> but uh, yes of, of course but I, I think that here, if you mix this discussion then with the discussion on the pandemic, you see really interesting effects. Because when um, colleagues of mine, actually before the pandemic started turning the education into a completely digital one, we, we funded a few projects on, on sort of digitalizing a few courses. And uh, as one example I usually take was a course that was a late course in one of the engineering programs that usually had 25 students per year. And they get some funding to sort of very professionally turn that into a digital course. And and then they started advertising this course on, on the internet. And now they have 10,000 students per year on that course. And I was simply thinking that, well, what an efficiency increase that you could make out of this, uh, which sort of the pandemic pushed in a sense. So, so I would very much like a discussion where you could sort of think about what happens when you do that. Because if you have 10,000 students instead of 25, you can't sit and correct uh, exams, right? right? Yeah. Force there is automation. Yeah. So, so you need to automate it. And, and then you, of course, you could work with peer grading and so forth. But, but you really need to make use of AI to, to help you in, in correcting these assignments. And, and you need to design an entire software system could could help you in in that process so you're really sort of changing the way that you're educating and interestingly enough also i i, I observed that the focus of universities is usually teaching um, uh, people between 19 and 25 and then then that's the way we put our efforts right but when you start uh, advertising the courses the way that they did, they got students that were 60 and, and uh, even students that were 15 that was found that this was interesting. So you could actually uh, make use of this to, to make something that, that becomes more of lifelong learning. Mm -hmm. So it changes completely the perception of what a university is. So, so if if we're supposed to be as in the old days, somebody that you something that you're supposed to get to get your your higher education degree, you graduate by 25 years of age, about, and then you go out and work in industry, never to return. 
Because when we give people their diplomas, it's like saying, bye-bye, now we close the door to what you're doing. So I actually think that diplomas may even be harmful in this sense. You, we should, should sort of leave a door open that you could come back and refuel new knowledge and, and new experience that, that you need. And it would be useful for us as, as teachers to to hear what you are working on and, and what you can learn from from uh, that and and we, we could provide you with up-to-date knowledge on things that that uh, you haven't had because i did a, an engineering physics degree in computer science there wasn't any courses in ai at that time it just didn't exist but now it's the single most uh, uh, most popular subject for our students to take at the university. So, so this is the change that is happening. So, therefore, but I think that we we really need to find a way where universities could sort of refocus on also teaching to the the uh, sort of bigger community but, out there. I mean, unless if you look at what you, <coughs> some, if I try to sort of iterate and summarize what you said now, from you know working more in business and having these kind of discussions on enterprise level with a company like Scania or Vattenfall, you know, we need to be a business. Mm. So what you're talking about now is, you know, we, we like uh, to sometimes refer to uh, first principles, right? So it's like, you know, what's the core first principles of education? Mm. And then basically we, 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 you know, what are we trying to do? Uh, we need to, we need to reinvent ourselves and we need to sort of sort out that actually, the way we define our product, our mm. service, you know, diplomas. Well, first principle, and then go back, and we end up in a, another offering for lifelong learning. Mm. It's it's a very different operating model. If mm. I now use uh, lingo, enterprise lingo, yeah. all the way through here, yeah. and and here we come to the topic. You know, uh, how do we now start? dealing with this because the way I see it is that we have lived with, you know, in what I would argue quite low innovation pressure. So mm. basically we could, we had stable processes, stable enough to draw swimming lanes mm. that we can live by. And here we have uh, Kurzweil's law of accelerating returns and we have technology and innovation presses clearly going up mm. everywhere. So it means we need to, we need to, we, our, our ability to adapt flexibility is fundamentally a different operating model that it's not economies of scale that is the mantra anymore. It's mm. the economy of learning and mm. economy of adaptability. Yeah. So here, here is the fundamental steering mechanisms of the organism mm. needs to change. Mm. So that is a long rant. Yeah. You know, where do you stand on sort of, how do you sort of comment on, on what I sort of laid out? So, so I, I think that basically universities of today and also the, the de department of uh, the Ministry of Education is very much focused on that. The single most important part of the education is to, to give people an exam. And I'd rather like to give people knowledge. I think knowledge is more important than exams in this sense. But uh, but when I'm saying this, my boss thinks that I'm crazy in a sense because we're measured on exams. No, but, and, and what's the per, what was the utility of the exam? It helps us to get, to get in the system of how we yeah. you know get jobs and all that. It's a utility of the exam, of course. Yeah. Yeah, but, but not not only that because you know you get money to the university based on exams, right? Yeah, yeah. So the, with the current a, model, the current uh, model has the exam yeah. as a core mechanism yeah. in here. But but there are exceptions to these models. So, for example, in um, um, in my subject in in UX, uh, we have 
sort of been experimenting around rather than sort of having a collection collection of past courses thinking about that maybe you, we should start by you designing your portfolio of things that you're doing and then you add to your portfolio different achievements that you've done you've written this report you've programmed this system you've designed this uh, function and and so forth and just like a photo model is showing images that somebody has taken of him or her you could show your portfolio this is what i know and and here comes another interesting thing i i think that one of the the my uh, great sources of inspiration to this is actually my wife she's uh, working with hr uh, and working at a big uh, it consultancy company with uh, this and um, uh, at one point she she uh, when she was hired the they the manager says well we need to hire now 400 programmers get going on this and and after less than a week uh, uh, he was coming back saying are you ready soon we need them now and and she was just saying that that it couldn't work like this so what they did uh, which i found quite interesting at the company was that they they decided to gamify the recruitment so they turned the requirement specification of the position into a computerized game so potential candidates could go in and solve different problems and level in this system and then they could start the hiring process with those that came out the best the interesting thing there was that Actually, the the uh, gender equality was much better in as a result of this game than from the usual recruitment processes, uh, which of course then was probably skewed by the fact that that the managers recruiting were mostly male, so they would recruit people that were similar to them. But in this game, there was actually uh, equally many females as males that that came out well. The second thing that that she told me was that that um, as a matter of fact, there's many people who haven't actually finished their degree, uh, but they score w- very well with what they need to know in this. So so, and then they've acquired knowledge in through different channels. So so maybe we're now assessing to what extent you f- fulfill a predefined path of courses with a certain examination. That's what we do. Uh, and we, we're uh, the Bureau of Assessment. That's that's basically uh, what a university is. And then it is also, of course, a, a research factory in a sense and present uh, of, of research. But the assessment factory is what, what I'm, I'm critical towards here. So, so maybe we should sort of rethink how we're doing this. So if the company is hiring people because they know something rather than that they haven't a particular degree, maybe we should educate them to know something rather than to get a certain degree. That's sort of my argumentation. Yeah, of course. It yeah. sounds good. But how do you go there? I mean, what's the? can you really change? I mean, there are so many online courses these yeah. days and people are, you know, I think using in their CVs more and more, you know, exams from online courses than yes. from universities. Yeah. From Stanford on the one hand side, Coursera on the other side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I mean, Today, uh, also, there's a big discussion on how could you work with the validation of uh, acquired skills. So somebody could come in and have a set of of knowledge that they have acquired, and then they ask the university to validate their skills. And, And to some extent, maybe we should actually test them 
rather than just uh, see what types of certificates they they have because then then you can't fool yourself through an education if you actually look at what they're actually able to do so if you start hiring people by what they actually do they try out different tasks then maybe we should deliver an education that that does this as well and how do you do uh, design such an education well i i made a few experiments with this when i was more involved with teaching than i am right now and and particularly i I made contracts with different companies uh, and moved my uh, my courses out into the company. So instead of teaching at the university uh, facilities, we were sort of going out to the companies teaching there. And the students, and this was a course on usability evaluation, the the students, uh, rather than working on our artificially created tasks for, because they're easy to assess in our system, were rather working with with aftonbladet.se uh, and, and uh, Saab's autonomous uh, helicopters and, and, and testing these things in, instead. And then when I came out as a teacher to the industry, I got to see what it looks like there. So I learned a lot and they had a, a really good step into the company because they, they had gotten to learn people there and the, the company were happy because they had recruitable students that they could have. So this is a completely new way of thinking. Because, and, and the education. tricky point here is that ultimately, like in any business endeavor, you have your business model that you need to translate into an operating model and, and you know, your revenue streams. And, and, and what is quite interesting now is that I think if you want to truly change the underlying educational system and, you know, mm. for a university, you need to understand your, 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 how will that impact and how will we change our revenue streams or how will this work? I mean, like, I, I, th- I think you, you have a brilliant idea here. I mean, like one example is we, we have, we, we, we put people through a process to give them exams. Okay. So they pay for this and they do that. Then we get them exams. You can, you can imagine like what, what if you are a certifier assessor? Mm. So like, I don't really know, I don't really care how you acquired your knowledge. Mm. You, you could have done it on YouTube, mm. but in the end, I can give you an, a, a, you know, a certification mm. that then that you can, you know, that's another business model. You mm. know, you don't need to go through all my classes, but in the end you can get the stamp of approval. Yeah. I'm like, mm-hmm. All these things ultimately is all together. So if we want to reimagine the educational system, the, the business <coughs> model still needs to make sense in some way. Uh, or? Yeah, I, but, but this is why I think we need to rethink the business model. We can't That's have a we can't have a business model that is based on the number of of lectures exactly. you provide and and the number of students you you take in for your your things and and the number of students you graduate, which is the way it looks today. We we need to think in a completely different fashion about this, and and I think we slowly can build that. I mean. Two years ago, we started at KTH and saying that we should have much more lifelong learning. I think at that time we had like 0.1% of lifelong learning in the uh, overall curriculum that we had. Then we had a vice president for education that said, well, before 2023, it should be 20%, which is uh, <laughs> sort of an enormous increase in, in uh, what we're doing. So... Basically, we we started uh, working on how can we sort of develop our education to make it useful for for the people out there that that uh, need these things to, for people in industry 
then you see what do people in industry need? Well, they, they, they're really keen on learning, but they can't take their normal business hours doing the learning. So they need to have a flexible structure on uh, what you learn and when you learn it, which requires them that you digitalize the education to make it available in, in, in that way for people. And, and here's, the, here's the connection now, because you're reinventing the business model, you're coming up with certain things, yes. and all of a sudden... We cannot deliver this in the same way as we did in the analog way. No, we need exactly. to figure. We want to, we, the operating model changes, and therefore yeah. the whole environment digitally changes. But yeah. going to to more concrete examples of this, that's <laughs> good fun. Um, <coughs> thinking, you know, there is, I think, a huge gap, of course, in how traditional education has been working, and you have this kind of standard, like you, you study in the early years, and then you work forever to a more continuous learning approach, a more agile, uh, if I would call it that, approach to, mm. to doing education. And for me personally, I just actually at, at work took like a four-day course uh, provided by by work, and I thought it was extremely s- waste of time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> you <laughs> took the cool. wrong course. It wasn't no, KTH. It, so, yeah. No, but <laughs> it was a really good course. You know, the outcome was really good and important and valuable. But I think, Jesus Christ, Going a course for four days, that's yeah. insane. <laughs> so you're becoming and quite agile now. You, you wanted to do, do, that, do it. But, you know, thinking about, you know, normally for a master, you can go four years and you think that's okay. Mm. And this kind of gap about, you know, how you properly do lifelong learning when you have very much more incremental or small pieces of knowledge that you mm. continuously learn instead of you know, learning everything at once and then forget it. Yeah. It's mm. a super big change, right? Yeah. Do yeah, think, yeah. Do you um, think universities can can move in that direction and have a big part of that? I, I think we've actually shown that we're able to as well. Because uh, I mean, one example that we did that that I'm I'm really proud of the fact that we managed to do it uh, mm-hmm. because we did it against the will of the the management of the university was something called the Software Development Academy, which mm-hmm. was uh, we got a grant from Wallenberg and from the European Science Foundation to. Um, make a really quick education of newly arrived immigrants that had some sort of higher education. And right. they, they, how could we sort of help them to get a, a sort of an equivalent of a bachelor in computer science uh, uh, quickly? And, and how, how long time do you need to be able to do that? And we could get it down into, I think it was, uh, 12 to 14 weeks uh, of, of uh, I mean, a three-year study. We yeah, got it down that's, into, that's really into good. that. That is good. And, and uh, then we uh, sort of, we, we took uh, students that were newly arrived immigrants. They had a residence permit in, in Sweden. Uh, uh, so we took them in and... Uh, this worked extremely well. So, so uh, I mean, I think it was about 70% of them had a job uh, uh, after a month or two after their graduation of these 14 weeks um, on this. Uh, and the interesting thing was that when I... Uh, I visited them because I didn't do this education myself. I, I was managing it. And, and so I visited them when they were close to graduation. And I asked them, what do you think about your education here? And they said, well, it's great, but it's, you know, it's so big a problem at KTH to go and have lunch. And I said, what? Uh, yeah, 
because there's so many headhunters outside offering <laughs> us jobs. So, so we we don't really know. Can you say no to a headhunter? Is that possible? Will it get back to? And these were people that came with names that usually yeah. made them not be the one picked for interviews when they applied for positions. They could have applied for hundreds of positions without ever getting to an interview. And now the headhunters were queuing up to, to hire them. So we could actually condense, uh, speaking of your inefficiency and in what, yeah. what you learned, we could condense this into really a short and quick way of doing it. And then it was full-time studies and it was a lot of, of also project-based things where they actually created things uh, uh, together and, and they worked in a great fashion. So we did that, this for, I believe it was 11 rounds of 25 people or so in in uh, each um, a few hundred people that went through this and was extremely popular but when we asked the university uh, about this they said no we can't do this uh, why not because it's illegal they said, mm -hmm. I, um, what do you mean well in sweden you cannot buy your education you cannot buy a higher education so so then we need to do this as commissioned education so so updrags with building yeah. that that you you sort of have a company that buys your uh, education that's fine but as an individual you're not allowed by law to to acquire your education right. in that sense but so so then we said but now we have a grant to pay for this education so it's actually the grant that pays for for them to 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 do it, but that wasn't possible to do. So we actually mm. teamed up with an HR company that was specialized in the area. And then they could buy the education from us mm. on that. So, so we gave them the money that we got <laughs> to buy uh, the education <laughs> from us. Then it worked because then it wasn't the individuals that, that uh, bought this. I love the innovative way. ideas of solving, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and I think that unfortunately, I mean, when the grant was over, this wasn't anything that we as a university could take over and do with our state grants. Yeah. That would not have been allowed to do. So, so this so I mean we have mechanisms in which we have come up with and you have great proven new mechanisms ideas. but then that there are other mechanisms that need to be in place or yes yes and and one of the problems here is that industries uh, and I've spoken to quite a few industrial leaders and they they're quite keen on paying for their staff's education they now realize that we we just can't do what what like Ericsson did uh, 10 years ago when they fired 10,000 people and hired another 10,000 with a different degree on. They, they need to work on reskilling their staff. So, so they need to come up with completely new ways of, of uh, working uh, with that and, and, and uh, teaching their staff on that. So uh, usually the highest management, they think that this is great. We, we can do that. And money isn't a problem. We could buy uh, educations for them. But then in the end, when it comes to the local manager somewhere that's supposed to bill your hours on one on doing this then then it just don't happen the way that that the manager thinks it sh it should do so we have a bit of a problem both in terms of getting individuals to want to educate themselves after they've gotten their full education
education, getting industry to to sort of pay for education, getting universities to change the education to fit this, getting the study loan system to support uh, you getting your second degree, although we now have this omställningsstudiestöd that, that would allow you to sort of at least spend eight months in, in trying out something new in this. And so, and we need the politicians to sort of change the legislations around our, our higher education. So they're, ma- they're multifaceted. It's here. a system problem. It's a system problem. So, so you can't just change one part of this system. You need to sort of change the entire system to work in a different uh, direction. And that's what makes this such a wicked problem to work with. I think there are a lot of companies and organizations willing to pay for an education like that if it were to make <laughs> yeah. available. I, I think we need, we really need to move on here. The time is quite Oh, great, I have so many questions. I have rabbit holes <laughs> on this. I think, you know, we can simply summarize it as, uh, I guess, that there are lots of opportunities of improvement, if you call it <laughs> like that, when it comes to, I guess, digitalizing and, and transforming education into something that is more fit to our current day of working and living, right? Mm. Right? Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And I guess it's a positive thing. And, and, and yeah. I, I, I want to pick up the last sentence. This is a systems problem. Mm. Because it's for the educational system, it's for the enterprises that I need to digitize. Yes. And it's a different ball game because you need to have a cohesive approach to it and you need to address them all. So I, I don't know when we're going to talk about this, but I think this is the real, you know, at, at the bottom of the Gordian knots mm. is how to work cohesively with these topics mm. because it changes everything. Yeah. You know, it changes how you need to organize a university because I don't care that you have five different disciplines. I, I care about the cross-functional team mm. where the five different disciplines works well together. How will you educate for that? I mean, mm. And it goes on. Yeah. So it's a system problem, I think, is a summary. I couldn't agree more. Taking the next topic then, but still connected to this, and trying to move also, since we're already like, you know, more than half past seven already, um, we can think about, you know, the tech companies that are moving, you know, very fast in terms of both uh, economics, they are the top most valuable companies in the world today. The, the mm. top in like Google, Facebook, Amazon, Microsoft of the world, and Tencent, uh, Baidu, uh, Alibaba, etc. In, in China, and they're also not just leading the tech and AI digitalization, but they also are you know driving education to a large extent, and they're also hiring a lot from academia. They're basically taking the top talents. I would argue even professors and, and also students very quickly from universities and just hiring them mm. with a head headhunting you know, problem, as you mentioned. Mm. What do you think about this? Is this a problem? Do you think that the universities will have a place in the future or will it continue to be a transition where, where the top talents and education and research will be led by tech companies rather than universities? I I think the universities will play a big role in the future, but they need to be more agile and more adaptable to to, uh, the the future life. And and if they keep on not changing the way that, that, uh, or the slow change that has happened so far, I I think that, that the 
the days are counted in in uh, that respect. I, when I lecture about this, I, I uh, try to to uh, for the pedagogical reason I try to ex- explain to them what uh, a, a classical teaching situation looked like in the university, and I describe a situation where I stand in front of a class, and they they usually in a cinema seating type of thing where the, there could be five hundred students there, and I stand and I do this this um, uh, sort of of one-way communication in in uh, w- what I'm doing, and and I explain this situation to them. I don't get any questions back and what it looks like and 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 so forth. And I people sleeping and uh, people uh, sitting with the laptops or, or or speaking to each other or, or doing other things. And then when I tell people and I say, could you imagine what this looks like? And then I show them a picture. Picture is 1,000 years old. It's a picture from Bologna, which is sort of the teaching situation. That looks exactly like that. So I use that pedagogically to sort of explain that we haven't sort of developed since innovated the core model. No, exactly. And so so therefore we need to rechange. We need to redefine how we do these things. And I, I think that one one fun example that I had from before the pandemic was that our our director of undergraduate studies came to me and said, Gulan, we have some problems with your your uh, your teaching now." And I said, "Well, w- what's the problem? Well, the students aren't coming uh, to class." And and I said, uh, and then he said, "But I've solved the problem." Uh, I've decided that from now on your lectures will be mandatory. <laughs> and I said, um, well, maybe that's not the, the decision I would want to see on that. Could you just give me some time and I'll try to explore what has actually happened? So I went to my class and I individually I went to have a talk with him. And I went to one guy that, that was uh, a guy that asked me before the first class saying that, is it okay if I put my telephone here and film your lecture? Because, you know, I have cognitive problems and I'm dyslectic and I have ADHD and so forth. So so I I really need need this uh, to, to have a look at this. So I interviewed him and asked him, what, how does this work? And he said, this is superb. He said, I, I watched one minute of your lecture a few times after each other and then I feel that this is the first time I could really grasp what you're, you're, you're doing. So he, he uh, does rewinds, uh, yeah. rewind things and watch it again. And I said, well, that's great, um, but could you help me here? How, how come people aren't coming to class anymore? And then he said, yeah, I put the film on Facebook as well. <laughs> and, and I said, oh, Okay, so I started interviewing a few of the others, and I found these really amazing stories. So there was one Iranian girl who who said that, well, I I found found some software where I could subtitle your lecture in Persian. So we're meeting all of the family every Friday night to watch this week's lecture together and and talk about it afterwards. And there was a, another guy that always looked very sleepy that said, well. I think your film lectures are great because I think you speak so slowly. So I watch it in double speed and therefore I could do it uh, double as quick <laughs> to do these things. And this is the point, Facebook guy. Yeah, yeah, no, it was not the guy putting it on Facebook, but it was another guy that used his Facebook movie on, on that. And my point here is that where's the innovation? 
Well, it's the innovation is with the students. They're the one that comes up with the new ways of learning in this sense and making use of whatever is there. So, so back, to, back to your you Yeah, the user center, <laughs> the design of, of things. And, and so I, I find them, I kind of find this as the interesting source for development that if we could work more with having these people uh, being involved in the innovation of our education, so, we so in the end, amazing it, stuff. There was a different channel people were getting what they needed in a different way they're yeah. feeding physically in the lecture exactly and because they were doing it digitally they could enhance yeah. by putting subtitles on it exactly and rewind it yeah or speed it up and make it more accessible for people with disabilities which is one of the concerns that i do some quite a bit of research on because uh, there's i i mean i digged out statistics from kth's education and and right now there's 10% of our students that have reported a disability that they have diagnosed that makes them need specific support for their education they may need longer time for their exams or they may need a, 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 a sound version of the course literature or whatever is there and the interesting thing is that out of those 10% it's 1400 students right so it's quite a lot of them you would see that that uh, who are they well 1% is people with blind or vision problems 1% is people with hearing uh, problems 2% are people with mobility problems and 96% are people with cognitive problems half of them are dyslectic and and therefore need all sorts of help in this so subtitle lectures is are superb for for them so innovation in terms of ux or usability of education is something that we yeah. need more of right not only usability but accessibility also. accessibility yeah but but the user centric innovation is actually at the core of this uh, anecdote yeah yeah they, you can say that i mean that's sort of the core of me as well i, I get that. Sort of user, the user centered design person in that sense thinking that we only have a short period of time left i'm i'm thinking if we could switch to a more like lightning talk session where we we <laughs> ask some questions we have a number <coughs> of topics that we would like to cover and we try to limit them to a couple of minutes of answers or discussion. Good luck. Yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I think it's a great idea, Anders. But yeah, let, we'll probably fail, but we could, we could try. <laughs> it's uh, my fault that night. No, 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 it's no, perfect. No. It's absolutely perfect. We, we all have the same problem, I think. If we just move to uh, HEI or human-computer interaction in general, uh, you know, uh, how, if you were to, in 30 seconds, try to still... Describe how that has evolved in the last like 10, 15 years. How, how would you say uh, human-computer interaction has transi- transitioned over the years? Over the last 10 to 15 years, it's gone from being a rare subject that only a few people did to being one of the single most uh, popular uh, roles in software right. development these right. days. You need basically to have a UX person in most teams. Yeah, I've heard so many companies say that that that's sort of the most important person in their software development team. So, mm-hmm. is there some connection to if we move more into AI? Let me give you a short anecdote here. And and uh, I know my mom, for example, she worked in in healthcare, and and she was really scared when. 
the healthcare system digitalized and, and they had to use digitalized journals and, and they had to use the like a form-based system to write in you know whatever happened for a patient in the journals and, and you couldn't edit anything and the UI was horrible and and she and and I think a lot of people think that the more things become digital the worse the interaction will be and and the less efficient people will be I would argue, and please disagree, uh, is that uh, as we continue to become more and more data and AI driven, at least, it will make the interfaces easier and it will make the interaction with machines or computerized systems going back almost to what it was when you didn't have computerized systems to work with. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, and and you you want me to have a quick answer to a long <laughs> question here. I I basically I think uh, we could see from for example Svenskan och internet the internet citizens studies that presented next week I think or two weeks from now uh, this year. So you you could see that the and those that are not using computers today is basically, I mean, it's uh, like uh, very few that do not use computers at all. And those are typically the elderly. And if you see upon why they're not using it, the the uh, uh, the uh, reason why, uh, the, the biggest reason why is because they don't see any use of it. Yeah, but but the the hard to use or lacking usability that's yes. decreasing every year in it their studies. Right. So so it's becoming better and better. So we're using more uh, fancy. We can use voice to talk to a computer. We can have different ways. So so the UX becomes and it's more, more, and more personalized. You know, personalized. Yeah, and yes. it's it's also so that I mean, twenty years ago you couldn't use a, a computerized systems without reading the manual first. Mm-hmm. I mean, men, uh, the the kids of now they don't even know what a manual is anymore because it's uh, supposed if the system to be self explanatory it's bad exactly and and speaking of elderly i i uh, i uh, love this story about my mother-in-law who's 80 years old and and uh, we uh, i wanted to launch a day when i was digital champion to to say that that i want to have one day a year where we bring some of our relatives or friends online that are no longer uh, that haven't been there um, uh, new technique asked me, well, have you done that? And we want to do a study or an interview with her. And so we, I brought her to my mother-in-law and she, she, um, uh, she hadn't been using computers at all at, at work, even though she was a highly educated psychologist. So, so um, then we got her a, 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 a tablet a computer and I asked her, do you need any help? And she said, no, no, I think that's going to sort out and then a few weeks later when I came back I thought that well probably I'm going to see that she hasn't used it at all but I opened it and had a look and I could see that wow she's buying theater tickets online she's buying food online she's even buying booze from Systemologet (laughs) online and she's She's even downloading illegal movies, and, and that's when I discovered that she she was also using uh, Skype to chat with her grandchildren that uh, showed her all of these things. And, and I said, well, this is amazing. You've always said that you hated computers. And she said, yeah, computers, but you know, this is an iPad, she said. So, so for her, the, an iPad wasn't a computer. And I think that with all of these systems that become more and more ubiquitous or, or invisible or 
voice controlled or gesture controlled or whatever it is we 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 will not be as uh, hostile or mm. or afraid of using them as we were in the past with the computers that that we thought that they were only for the experts in this exactly. sense so the future will rather make machines more accessible right Yeah, and, and you shouldn't be afraid of it. And adaptable to your knowledge levels and, and uh, to help you also to start using them and, and engage with them. So I, I hope that it will be even easier uh, when you think about human AI interaction rather than human computer interaction in that sense. Do you want to leave this topic or have a, I have a I side have, question on this? Uh, please take. I have another connected one. But so this yeah. is a connected one. Okay. So... <coughs> A lot of the conversations we've had is all about, you know, we need to optimize, if I talk about AI now, we need to optimize the use of uh, data and AI for what what purpose that is good. To, uh, and then augment sort of the human and, and let that person be, uh, let the person be good at what they should be good at. So we, we, we talk about, you know, that um, an AI can be very good at sorting things, categorizing things and stuff like that. So, so to some degree, to imagine like on, on more knowledge intensive processes that the AI can take over the whole thing, it, it's, it's, it's very crazy to think about or difficult to think about. But if you start understanding that in the end to end knowledge intensive process, the AI is doing something much better than us and the human is doing something better, like maybe synthesizing or reasoning in, in relation to something. So that sort of whole spiel, you know, let the AI be good at what the AI is good at, let the human be good at what the human is good at. Um, what is what your thoughts around UX, where basically we are, we as people will be better at interacting with the sort of the work that the AI is doing? How should we think about managing huge numbers or, you know, the things that we are typically bad at, but that we can have an AI to, you know, augment our processes so what, what does that mean so i uh, maybe i'm i'm reinterpreting your question here but i mean many times is this discussion on on who's best is it the ai or is it the the human being on 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 these things and try to come up with with and, and compete with each other but every time they seem to end up with the conclusion that uh, the best solution is to have humans and ais collaborating on things that so so thing. this is this is the core argument yeah. we need to have ai and humans collaborating. Yes. And I was doing a long spiel to sorting out <laughs> where, you know, what is the AI good at? Now, what is the essence of effective collaboration UX-wise between the AI and the human in your opinion? I think if you could have the AI be good at tracking the the uh, knowledge and skills level of the user, so that they could adapt to their particular needs in in uh, in that respect, it would be uh, um, uh, much more suitable for for what we need. I mean, uh, we've seen examples in in old HI literature on how you make a remote control for your TV set for somebody that has Alzheimer's and and uh, only should be able to move sound up and forth and, and switch channels and nothing else at all and you make things really really simple but but i mean with the future systems you could make them adaptable so when when you 
know a little bit, that's what you can do. And if you want to increase your skills and do other things, you could add different skills to it in, in that sense. So I think that you will have systems that adapt and evolve uh, together with the humans. So so they, they sort of teach each other on this. And then the the AI systems should also then be good at, at tracking what, what am I doing and, and what are my needs based on what I'm doing in that sense. And I, I think that we more and more get systems that, that behave in, in that way and are, are good at tracking that. I mean, at, at my university, we have examples of, of uh, teaching situations where where you have uh, um, systems that automatically tracks, tracks how you behave in, in computing tasks or in mathematics tasks. And then you, you, they present the, the assignments in a pace that is adapted to, to what you're able to do. So if you feel that you, you know multiplications tabelle and then they're going to move uh, forward because they realize that you, you do everything right here. We don't need to deal with that anymore. Then we can move on on that. And there's quite a bit of research happening at my university on these type of automatized systems where you could become more uh, efficient and and also learn more things and learn learn things with higher quality in that respect. So, Machines and humans adapting together. I think AI systems adapted in relation to the human interaction. And human adapt as well. And human yeah. because so they, they're, they're learning together. Adapt together. Yeah. yeah, that's I what that's the core thing. That's that's the they co-develop, yeah. Yes. Co-develop. Interesting. I heard, I think it was you that said it. I'm not sure if you said it, but I, I think so. And um, I don't know the English word for it, but uh, I think you said something about the digital skyddsronder or something. Mm. Mm. At some point, I heard you. Work, what, in my, uh, work environment protection, protection rounds is protection. what it's called. I thought that sounds so awesome. Can you just describe your thoughts about that? Yeah. So um, when I was a boss at the university, uh, my uh, uh, safety uh, expert came and did the yearly audits of my mm. work environment. And From a physical point of view. Yeah. Right? And, and it was typically, well, this cable, it looks like the cleaning staff will trip over it. And, and do you know how you can can uh, set your chair uh, to be... Uh, yeah. And, and do you need to have, what is that called? Handlovstöd for your uh, your keyboard so so that you can relax that. That was as close as they came to the computer. No, no, uh, none of these safety staff ever asked, do I get too many emails? Is the response time in, in the computer too, too slow or, or things such as that? So, so our idea there was that, that we should uh, not only analyze the physical or social or organizational work environment, we should check the digital work environment. Right. Because if you read the, the uh, work environment law, the legislation there clearly states that the employer is responsible for your work environment and that involves the digital work yeah, environment exactly. as well. So so why then if we're assessing the physical and social and organizational work environment, we should assess the digital work environment. The problem is that the safety inspectors they they don't have the skills of analyzing your digital work environment. So so therefore 
we came up the, with, or others as well have come up with this concept of doing work environment rounds. And to be able to do that, you need uh, not only somebody having the safety inspector skills, but you need also to have somebody with IT skills that come in. And usually when you do these uh, protection rounds, you need to have a manager that has the authority to make decisions upon what's happening. Mm. So you go out and you do inspections of, of people's work situation. And the interesting thing, which is different to traditional UX work, is that if you do a UX evaluation, you typically look at one system. And but the majority of the problems that people perceive is between the systems. It's exactly. that that you 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 can't sort of you have different times? formats of the personal identification number in the two different systems. So you you can't even copy from one to the other, and things like that. And and if you could then uh, track all of these problems, uh, so we do these inspection rounds and we track all of these problems, and then just to make it quick now, then we go through and we, we categorize and prioritize these problems and then we create designs on how should these be solved. And in the majority of cases, it's not that they need a new IT system. Sometimes it's a lousy IT system and they need a new one, but in the majority of times they actually need some more education on how they use things uh, because the, the functionality they need is there, they just don't know. So, so, so they should be taught on this. And uh, we also found that, that uh, support is really great. We have the best support uh, team that we can have at KTH, for example, and they got really high grades. But the biggest problem is, is when people do not use the support. Because during the pandemic, people thought that, oh, I have problems with my broadband connection here, but that's semi-private, right? So I can't call my support desk. And they said, if only people would have called, we would have helped them because for them to be able to work in a good fashion and efficiently from home, they need that to work. So we could also help them to get those things to work right. So so the biggest problem with support was that people didn't use it in, in, um, in right. that sense. And then also we discovered that some of the biggest problem that you had uh, wasn't actually a systems problem, an IT systems problem. It was the business processes around it. So right. it was sort of putting a lot of extra uh, authentication type of thing or signature type of thing on things and, and, and a lot of extra bureaucracy around things so that we could identify and then come up with a list of these are the, the uh, measures that needs to be taken and who's in charge of do this and at what time should that be finished. And so we developed this, and I did it with, a, and I've also written a scientific paper about it. We did oh, it really? at a case with the, the um, uh, what's that called? The Verwaltningsretten, uh, uh, oh, yeah. the, the, uh, uh, the court in Gothenburg that we, we tried uh, this on, and uh, we made a paper out of that. And then this was actually then taken into an, uh, a, a Swedish standard. So, Anvendvarhetsronden, the usability protection round is now a Swedish standard and also proposed as an international standard. And I was the first one then trying out this uh, round and the methods and using that and also could feedback on how that should develop in that sense. So it's a great example of how we can work with digital work environment. Um, what was it called? Usability standard round? or was the Usability unit? protection round. Protection. Unvenbarhetsrond. Yeah. 
So you think that type of, I mean, it sounds awesome to start with. I think, you know, it's it's absurd when you hear it that it hasn't happened before, I think. Mm. You know, of course you need to evaluate from a work environment point of view, yeah. also how the digital experience is. Mm. And yeah, it sounds obvious. And making standards for that is good. But, but another way is, is doing regulation and, and mm. just moving more into regulation space in general. What do you th- is that a good way to, to make companies more digitalized, to make them more able to handle things that <coughs> thinking about, you know, the digital work experience or what? And, and then we have, you know, all the things with GDPR about, you know, using mm. uh, yeah, for, for in, in te- integration or integrity purposes or the new upcoming AI Act and mm. so many ways to do regulation. What do you think about that? Is regulation... When is regulation good to use or potentially bad to use? So uh, regulations or or, or uh, laws play di- very different roles in different cultures. Yeah. I mean, in the US, you would typically have this see you in court mentality where right. you would sort of sue somebody because you're, you, you, had a, you get too mean, many emails or something like that. But in Sweden, uh, we use uh, uh, le- legislation much more preventive. So you, wa- you don't want to break legislation. That's sort of the culture of the Swedish uh, people in a sense. So in that sense, I think that the legislation actually helped uh, usability happen uh, more because it, it's clearly stated there that you should have systems that follow ergonomic principles and so forth. That's in both in the uh, work environment legislation, but also in the reg- regulation that the Swedish Work Environment Authority has issued. Um, unfortunately, this is in desperate need of updates then because the the the, uh, the display directive is the oldest regulation <laughs> on these, uh, the Work Environment Authority's list of regulations. So it's in desperate need of being updated. But uh, aside from that, it's, it's a good tool to use to sort of show and enforce that this is important. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because over the years you could see trends in, in what, what is it that makes things happen. So 20 years ago it was about cost-benefit. You needed to show that investments you made in usability made you earn certain amounts of money based, based on that. Um, so legislation has always played an important role but not sort of at the forefront of this Uh, in in some instances it's been like when you look at i don't know if you're familiar with this chaos reports that look upon the likelihood of of uh, projects to finish on time and within budget and and it's the american standish group that has looked at uh, and, and has statistics that that Half of all the projects are are uh, significantly delayed and and costs uh, about 189 percent of original budget, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, a third of all the projects are cancelled. So it's only about a sixth of all the projects that are finished on time and within budget. And if you look at uh, why they finished on time and within budgets, uh, uh, they've listed the requirements on on why, and on top is uh, user centered. 
sorry, user centered is one of the, uh, the uh, yeah so so they've been working with user centricity or user orientation as one of the requirement agile is one of the other on the top of the list or clear project uh, management roles and there's a list of different things that play an important role so there's been different trends in in what is it that actually influences why you do things but mm. now we're in the happy situation where ux is, is an accepted and respected role that has a natural part in all the development teams and so so now we don't sort of we don't have to work with these um always having to argue why this is a necessity and looking at cost benefits and and uh, all of these things but but rather find out how how can these uh, the work that the ux people do be integrated in a good way into the standard processes you you work with and and as i said before the the agile processes you you tend to think that they're uh, good at this mm. but but actually they 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 don't have ux built into right, them right. Uh, they they so typically if you want to do ux work what do you do in a scrum project well you you usually go to sprint zero that's where you put all of your design work mm. a new big design up front type of thing and and then you you in the actual sprints you do then that you don't have time to do any ux work because that's too sort of research oriented in the ways that you do so so you skip it there and then in the end you you go for the definitions of done when uh, when is this done or when it is it done done uh, mm-hmm. for uh, actually be able to to set whether you have met these uh, requirements or not so it's still tricky to get the ux work into like a, a, a scrum process in this and uh, the cases I've seen, because I've been also looking into this as a researcher, is that the best way to get a, a project to work well is if your Scrum master is a UX person. Then, ah, then it, it, it works really well, I've seen. I'm so tempted to go into all these kind of roles <laughs> of agile working, etc. But I don't think we should go there now. Um, but there, 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 we can go one aggregate higher. Because we have learned different things, you know, like Agile, Agile Scrum, and it comes very much from software engineering, if, yeah. if I put it like that. And then you highlight one key role in a cross-functional team, uh, the UX dimension. Who Who is doing that? It's not really, is that a developer or, you know, we know it can be so much more with psychology and everything. We've had Lydia here from, <laughs> yeah. from Google and, and all that. And then I argue it's the same problem when we start doing real deep learning work or analytical work where basically we have we need to explore we need to hypothesize we need to have a scientific approach to develop to design actually to understand the problem and all, and all this and so here we have in the different f- disciplines of a, of now a modern data ai driven system john bosch uh, defines john bosch in, in chalmers defines uh, digitalization as data ai software I, lo- mm. I love that short sweet sort of condensed uh, it's a computer scientist yeah, yeah i know that but 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 uh, you know you you know you need to put ux in there i guess but mm-hmm. but the core topic here is that here we have different disciplines with a fundamental work cycle they they are slightly different, yeah, and they need to work as one coherent system again, or mm. one 
coherent way way of working. And here, I think one is one of the key things, right? So we we have we have adopted agile. We have we have been sold on that sort of thing. But then, and then and then someone else has been sold on DevOps, mm. and then someone else has been sold on design thinking, and then a third one on service design, and then we have journey design, mm. and it's a mess when I come to a company and basically all the different disciplines have their jargon, their lingo, mm. and ultimately, let's put the team together and we let's work on this system now where we have a bit of software, a bit of data, a bit of AI, a bit of UX, yada yada yada. It 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 is a kind of when are we gonna get to the next point of fitting all this together more coherently. But but basically I also think that, that you're missing one of the points in your, your story here and that is all of the situations where you live under really lousy conditions like look at the Stockholm school portals or, or look yeah, at the med- medical <laughs> journals. Uh, you know, I was part of this uh, when Horizon Europe was uh, uh, coming to an end or Horizon 2020 was coming to an end and we were to formulate the ambitions of Horizon Europe. That is the current one. We were thinking about the missions of the future research and we were at this big workshop in Brussels where we were discussing, should we aim for eradicating Hating cancer or, or, or getting rid of poverty or getting a plastic free North Atlantic or, and then somebody said, said that, that what about having a mutual medical record in Europe? <laughs> and then everybody was laughing and said, no, 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 that's far too difficult problem. We can't have that. That's Eradicate uh, poverty is much easier. Yeah, exactly. So, so <laughs> the, clearly that's a tragic story as well. Yeah. So, so. But it, but isn't that I mean like this is and I think one of the recurring sort of themes of you know you know we have a hard time to I mean like and and maybe not agile scrum is the answer then we need to find a new lingo we need to find yeah, a lingo where all these things fit together you know but uh, I mean there's fashion in these things yeah. as well so true, so there's true. there's new methods coming up and and new names n- new, new names and and uh, all of a sudden you should work with double diamond and you should work with exactly. kanban or you should whatever it is that that is the the one in fashion right now and and uh, amazingly enough scrum has been sort of a more of a de facto standard for the last 15 years or so in in this but before that everybody was doing rap uh, that well, the rational universe. Yeah. yeah, so so it's it's different fashions, but maybe now it's time for the next uh, well, or, or process. Maybe, maybe we don't need to read the fundamental understanding of Kanban or, or, or like this, but we need to then be humble and empathetic what what does scrum mean or how do you define that or how do you uh, or if i if i now would argue that we have ux we have ai we have self-engineering as different disciplines in this cross-functional team mm. they need to then have some sort of understanding of the same use li- case life cycle or when do we do things so if you said we need design thinking or ux mm. design comes in the ideation stage mm. Mm. So we, we, we kind of start becoming more effective or not forgetting stuff. I don't know, very pragmatically. I think this is basic stuff that we should be able to do. But I think the basic skills that, that uh, we need to work more with is uh, the skills of collaboration. 
Ah, to exactly. to uh, respect each other, respect each other's knowledge and skills and disciplines, and and learn how to collaborate in an efficient manner in that. And uh, so, so it's it's not so much about having sort of the exact skills of every single small item. Those things you could typically learn, but but being sort of a, a good collaborator and a good listener, that's much more difficult. I love that. Learn. I heard some quote from. Um, a very senior uh, software engineer and someone asked him the question about you know who is the best software engineer and he said well it's certainly not the person with the deepest knowledge in whatever technology but i would say the best engineer is is the one that can communicate and collaborate yeah the one that actually when i look at some team and then try to see in, in this team who is the best engineer it's the one that talks to people mm. and i think it's very profound to think. Uh, this is an, another fascinating topic, but but uh, I, I did a lot of research into to the intersection between human computer interaction and software engineering like 20 years ago. And, and at one point I met with Larry Constantine. I don't know if you, you have heard about him, but, but one of the people in the object orientation and use case uh, arena. And, and I, I tried to sort of, of get the feel of what he was thinking. And then he he told me and he said i couldn't quote him on him but now he's so old so i think i can do that he said well frankly it's about keeping the users on an arm length distance <laughs> he said and he, he he said that 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 the goal of great designs and you know i've won design prizes he said that that's to to stay away from the users uh, enough time so that they positively surprised when they see you and then they <laughs> <laughs> then you should surprise them with some new fancy designs that they haven't thought about before. Oh. And I tried to sort of convince them to work more with with the UX type of, of things into this, but he clearly wasn't there. So so at that point, and this is in the early 2000s, they, the software engineers were saying that we need to bridge human-computer interaction and software engineering but human-computer interaction needs to build 80% of the bridge. Mm-hmm. That was, was basically what they said. We won't move uh, in, in this. And, and nowadays, I, th- I think that the increasing awareness and attention for human-computer interaction in UX have made others realize that this is a serious field. They have skills and knowledge that are not just common sense that we can work with and we have respect for them and and we've uh, come up with ways of, of interacting and, and trusting each other and, and deliver together in projects. And the respect is, is mutual. Sometimes I, when I meet with uh, users, I ask them, uh, "When did you? When was the last time you told your software developer what a great system you built? I really loved that." <laughs> and I've, and I've mm-hmm. frankly never Good heard a software developer say that they've had uh, feedback from the users saying this. But when I gave a UX course for the software developers at CSN, you know, the Swedish study loan uh, public authority, I I met with a hundred developers and gave them a course on on UX. And I made them go out and do field studies of the systems that they had built. And so they visited their case handlers and and had a look at that. There was one guy coming back and he was so fascinated saying, 
boy, I'm so impressed with with how skilled they were at, at using the the really tricky systems that we had built for them. I had no idea that it looked like this. This is so fascinating. And I said, you've never seen a user <laughs> use your system. It's like a director before? that never saw his film, right? No, no. And, and <laughs> I, 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 no, he said, no, I've, I've never thought of uh, that that could be useful to do. But, but now I've realized I've done that. But tell me one thing. I said, how long time have you been working here? No, it's my, my 26th year <laughs> now. So, so, and that, those things make me... But it's very telling. Yeah. It's very telling, right? It is. It is. Uh, but another uh, scary but a bit tragic quote. <laughs> but I, I, I now I post that this is an, 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 a new dimension in, in university studies or something like that. That we are we are working in our different disciplines, but who is working on the on the tactical discipline, so to speak, to orchestrate, federate, navigate, collaborate, mm. and finding the common lingo that is the glue. Mm. behind the different disciplines that need to collaborate together. I think this is in itself, uh, the, the, it, it's a layer here. Mm. And, and the, there's some magic going on in certain teams when they go, you know, when we have, we've all seen amazing agile teams, right? And and, and mm. when they have speed and, and everything just works and there's the UX guy and, and they're multifaceted and they mm. use, and they make it work, right? And they find their, they have find their operating model in this singular team, right? Yeah. But this stuff, are, are, I think this is super hard to get mm. right. It is, but I think that, that what we need to work to develop more in the future is to wor work with people that can develop the culture at organization because that's uh, the the today i think that's the what kills a lot of uh, mm. of uh, good um, development attempts that, that you're sort of faced with a workplace uh, culture that just doesn't uh, appreciate and, and uh, uh, accept sort of these types of changes that, that is essential in that sense you you can't take uh, take in that you maybe need to to train and learn and new system or you need to adapt the ways that you're working and come up with new ways of working it's it's um, completely different to what it was Oof. before you 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 you're you stepping on a toe here i know <laughs> i'm so tempted as well to, to i think but this was a very profound statement this is as well, really good what you're saying now but oh my god i want to uh, but, unwrap culture now because but or should we go there or i mean there? like first of all i mean like the the, the simple question is You know, is, is, is culture something you can work on or is it the result of something else? So is, what is culture then? Could you elaborate more how you think about that? Uh, to me, if you want to develop a culture, yeah. you need to work on the mechanisms that forms the culture. Mm. So basically, typically a culture is basically the consequence I mean, someone said, I think it's Hofstetter said, uh, culture is just the collective programming of the mind. So this essentially says, well, culture is an outcome based on what is your steering, what is your organization, what is your, man, your KPIs, what do you get rewarded for, et cetera, et cetera. So basically, if you want to change the culture, you need to look at the fundamental steering incentives, KPIs, organizational structures, and what they are promoting. 
So the culture is a result. Okay. It's not something that you can go. I mean, like if you, it's like it's a lagging KPI. But if you, if you would deconstruct culture, exactly. in, in, in uh, what what con- constitutes culture, I think that that there's a few mechanisms now that the current uh, IT systems have changed in organizations, and and one is that we've lost trust. We've lost trust in people. Uh, so, so now with with the systems that that tracks more or less everything you do, collects data on everything you do, and process that, and tries to follow up and measure everything, we've sort of gone beyond having the trust in uh, the the staff that they are actually professionals and they want to do a good work and and deliver the good results. We're rather working with checking uh, things. When I did one of my digital work environment rounds in, in at my uh, university and looking at, at HR people, I was asking them, uh, how, how much time would you save if the, your, your digital systems worked optimally? And they said, well, I would save about 80% of my working time. Exactly. <laughs> and 80%, I said, well, well, what's that? Well, you know, we have a system now where I enter information Then there's somebody else that checks that I've entered the right information. Then there's somebody else that checks that the person who checked this has entered the right information. That's sort of a culture that we've we've built into this. And this needs to fundamentally change. We need to to sort of view the works that we're doing so that we can reduce administrative load and burdens on, on people and get to the core of, of uh, what the work actually consists of. So that that's one part of the de- deconstructing deconstructing the culture of things. The second thing is, is um, and this is a good expression in Norwegian that we actually don't have in in um, uh, Swedish, but but uh, the the best way to translate it into English is to to talk about lust. That that you 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 really need to to uh, uh, grow the passion in in why people do things. Most people go to work because they're passionate about something that they deliver within what they do. Very few people go there just to earn their salary. Uh, so, so how can you sort of find and, and nurture the things that builds this this uh, uh, this uh, uh, lust in in what you're doing, uh, and and that I would uh, want to sort of focus more upon. In that. How you develop the passion in people and and make them be able to fulfill it in some yeah. way. Yeah. But I, I think we're on the same page. Uh, but uh, because the argument where I'm sort of my conclusion or my hypothesis of this is like it's quite futile to go out and say now we're going to sit and hold hands and we're going to have a training so you as an individual has better culture so you shape up because your culture and your environment is a consequence of how is the leadership driving and 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 fostering passion or promoting passion how is uh, leadership fostering and promoting innovation or or, or exploration mm. you know versus or where's your business case or you know so basically we, we, we have a lot of make different mechanisms and including our leadership that in the end has an outcome that becomes the culture that we then live in so if you want to change culture it's like you know if I want to improve my ear bit in my company it's a is a, a result KPI, 
I need to work on the levers that improves my E a bit. And I would argue culture is the outcome of other levers that you need to work on. And it's this connection to go out and do sort of fluffy culture training and inspire you. Okay, you can shoot some New Year's rockets for a while, but it's a con- fundamental uh, construct of the of the orga- organization, which is the steering, the governance, and all these studies matters that you need to change. But if, if, if as we're approaching the end, uh, yeah. which I am looking at on the for here, I'm, I'm sort of seeing that the boss that says, uh, now we're going to start the project of changing our culture, that's a failed boss immediately when, when you start doing that. You, you need to sort of focus on something different, which means that you're going to change the culture. So I have an example from my previous years as, as a boss. We had problems with uh, our the work environment of our PhD students. Um, uh, and what we did was that we hired a theater company, g- going back to drama again here. And, and the theater company, they interviewed the PhD students about their situation. And then they came and we, we gathered for a day focusing on our PhD education. And we invited the theater company and they played out what they heard in the interviews. Wow, so interesting. <laughs> and, and everybody was laughing and saying, oh, <laughs> you can't do it like that. And then they played that out. And then they rewind it and were to play it again. And then they say, now you should, now you should say stop when we do something bad. And then they had a few sentences and then somebody said, stop. No, I would never say that. I, I think you should say like that instead. And, and then they said, okay, come and show us. And, and people, the people were invited to, to participate with the actors and trying to play out these kind of things. And it was the, the best ever cultural change experience that we've had in in my organization at at the time and we could clearly measure the outcome of that afterwards because people were thinking about uh, their supervision situation because they lived it so so you cannot come and say that that this now we're going to change the culture in this you need to have other ways of sort of sneaking in that type of of focus on what you're doing that's when you can create change and and i thought that that could be your wrap up to where we started <laughs> with the drama uh, thing on this as well. Awesome, yes. And and I'm struggling a bit here in, in finding some final topics. We haven't <coughs> even moved into more societal kind of topics here. Time ran out. But I think at least one of them, because I think y- you have such an interesting background with psychology as well, and drama, and theatre, and you know, rhetorics and everything. And uh, <laughs> Anyway, you know, we had this kind of Google engineer at one point that said, you know, a person or a system at Google, Lambda, became conscious. And it would be just fun uh, to hear your thoughts about this as, you know, having an expertise in psychology as well. Do you think there are possibilities for machines to become conscious? I... I think I, I I saw you wanted to ask that question, so I was thinking <laughs> a bit extra upon that uh, previously. I I I don't think that uh, systems will develop conscious as we know it, mm-hmm. uh, because we're not rational, 
Um, As humans, yeah. yeah. Humans are not rational, but systems are, in a sense. But then with increasing complexity, it may be more and more difficult to, to see the rationality. So I think that we will perceive that the system has consciousness, but actually it's some sort of rational packaging of, of what has been done underneath there. And the question is, how far do you need to go before people start um, approaching the systems and, and speaking to them or interacting with them yeah. as if they had consciousness? Don't you do that already with cars or whatnot? Yeah, yeah I mean, right. of, of course you, you do. And, and I mean, you have a lot of also these... Uh, Uh, these films, uh, the, the movies that uh, try to explore different uh, ways of, of looking into this. But, but I think that, that uh, um, eventually the, the, all systems with, will be sort of man-made, rational in, in a sense, even though it's AI that may have sort of uh, constructed parts of it, it's still a human being sometime that constructed the AI that constructed this. So, so eventually you would be able to track down this to some sort of, of uh, uh, algorithm that had been created to do this. But you come to a point where the, the, the uh, transparency of those algorithms or, or your, your ability to deduce what caused the machine to make that decision became, becomes sort of clouded in a lot of other things. And, and, but still, I, I believe that it is a rational system behind it. But people are not rational. So, so that's so the difference. Do you difference think there are irrational thing. machines or, com or computers or AI systems out there? I, uh, no, I don't think so. Because that's the definition of a machine, right? That, uh, that it has been, been constructed in that sense. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not tempted to go in that direction that I think where the machines would have created some sort of own... Uh, 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 The, the irrationality of what we're doing, even if you introduce randomness of various forms into what they're doing, I, I, I'm, I'm not there on, on that page yet. But so uh, what's the difference I can be wrong, between, of course. Yeah. But if you think we can have different type of logic, if we speak about that, yeah. so you can have like deductive logic saying, you know, it's 100% sure given the premises that are true, or you can have more... Uh, more inductive logic where, you know, most of the things you have seen turns out that, you know, you've seen 100 birds coming out from the forest, uh, all being green, therefore all birds are green, mm. kind of inductive logic, uh, or deductive being, you know, uh, uh, humans die, uh, Anders is a human, therefore Anders will die, I mean, it's deductive logic. And, and then you have abductive logic saying, uh, you know, basically anything that has not proven to be wrong could be true, mm. saying, um, what could be a good example of this? Um, no one has proven that God does not exist, therefore he does exist. Mm. Uh, or that could be some kind of abductive, abductive logic that a lot of humans, some people, psychologists, I've heard, claim that 80% of the reasoning that humans do is irrational and it's type of this abductive logic. But wouldn't it be easy to, to make a system that behaves in an abductive way? But then you've created it. But doesn't humans create humans as well? Well, I, th I think that basically when you create a machine to, to do these kind of things, there's, there, there is 
you, you have made decisions and, mm. and you, you have made decisions into what, what should happen in various ways. And even if you introduce a lot of randomness and so forth, uh, there, there is a creator behind that. And I think that that's the, 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 um, the, the difference in a sense. But I may be wrong. I mean, I think that basically we, we think that things are developing very fast and for sure they are. I mean, the, the, the mistake we do sometimes, I mean, I'm invited to do talks and they want me to, to predict what will the world be in 20 years from now. And then most people do the mistake of saying, well, if we want to understand what happens in 20 years, we need to think 20 years um, before. What right. did it it's look like? It's not linear. No, it's not. Exactly. It's, it's not linear. So so then you need to, to sort of look uh, 80 years back and, and, and see that, that the the exponential in development in that sense. But then in, in, in a lot of the things where I'm involved, um, um, I see that the development is not as quick as you may um, think they are in that, that aspect. I, I have a classical picture I show of uh, the first field study I did in the 90s, and then I went back to the same workplace to look at it uh, 20 years later and how it had developed. And, and there's not much difference. Actually, the, the, <laughs> the screens even look quite similar. The, the, the two big differences is that the, the screen has become flat. And, it and it's not so green thick. anymore. It's, no, uh, the other, it's not dark, it's light. The, the, other di <laughs> the other difference is that the number of colors of the post-it notes that they put around <laughs> the screen has increased. But, uh. but, but so, so therefore, I think that, that we, we think that things are developing much more quicker than, than they actually are in that sense. And I, I think that, that in, in many senses, this, this uh, um, the development that we're talking about. We we can have predictions about it because I don't think that we will uh, be there to to actually see see that happen. Uh, I don't think a singularity or some kind of more general type of intelligence will happen in your lifetime. No, I don't think so. But I think I think one way where when I listen carefully to what you said. You, so I, we, we, I could reframe the question, when do you think we will have machines where the human will perceive consciousness? That means like that I'm talking to him, to the machine in such a way, so it's, I can perceive it as sort of being a very fluent conversation. And, but and that we have already, right? So, in some so, areas. Yeah, so so, so I think that's the difference, right? Because the, and then because the question was, is it real consciousness? And, and we said no. It's not, you know, illogical, irrational. It's designed mm. for some purpose. Yeah. Can we make that design so it's human-like? For sure, you know. But that's not the question. That, that wasn't the question. Mm. So perception, you know, perceived consciousness that is sort of on par with a, a normal conversation with any human, that is doable. But it's that real consciousness? That's the core question. Mm. Is, am I getting you right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we could we could probably uh, sort of uh, bend this uh, back and forth, and, and many times, and and I mean, if if you read like Max Tegmark's book and and uh, uh, the Life Three Point or or various of these, you could sort of clearly see that we are already now at the stage where the human being could question whether they're talking to a machine or to you another human being. So in that sense, we're already there, right? On on that, but but I mean that. 
that that from from the perception of it to to uh, whether it is actually uh, real in that sense, uh, real uh, um, autonomy or, or uh, real intelligence that has been created in that sense. I think that that's very far away. Don't but but can it be proven even? Can we, when can we prove that something is a perception and when something is real? How do we prove that? I don't know. I don't know either. No. If it looks like a duck... Swims like a duck, quacks like a duck. It's probably a duck. It's probably a duck. Oh, I love it. That may be a good summary. Yeah, I think we should. should um, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll stop there as well. Uh, Gulan, I was close to say Jan, 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 but <laughs> we should use Gulan. Gulan. What's next in your life? What's happening professionally, privately? Anything special happening in coming uh, weeks, months? What's happening in the coming weeks, times? Um, I'm gonna go uh, on a conference uh, mm. on Saturday awesome. down to Olborg, the Nordic human-computer interaction conference that I actually took Nordic part is in. Is it in Norway? It's a, now uh, to this year. It's in in Aarhus in Denmark. Do you, do you know Annette Kolmos? Uh, yes, I met her. She worked in KTH. Before, yeah, right? very long time ago, but long before I started. Before you started. Yeah, exactly. No, so so uh, uh, that's gonna be awesome. I mean, I I was part of starting that conference in 2000 mm. and and was the first chair of it. So I I love going back there and yes. seeing and and of all the achievements I've done, I think that maybe starting such an event that still exists. Yeah, uh, awesome. uh, What's the name of the conference? It's called Nordicai. So uh, Nordicai. So Kai is the computer human interaction, the big oh, yeah, conference, yeah. and we made a Nordic one in 2000. And it's still uh, running every second year in in uh, one of the Nordic countries. So so that's going to be a great time to meet with uh, colleagues and friends uh, from the Nordic countries. So I'm looking very much forward to that. Fantastic. Sounds great. Then I'm going to go directly from there to our summer house and on the West Coast and go lobster. Uh, uh, where is this? It's in northern Buisleen, in uh, outside of Grebestad. Grebestad. Yeah. Awesome. Anyone that you would recommend to for us to have on the podcast? Someone that you would like to, to listen to? I, I actually think you should talk to my wife. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I think she, they they're doing uh, really interesting uh, work on on trying to rethink uh, the HR uh, business What's, in the yeah. tech tech sector and and looking into new ways of of uh, uh, doing sort of talent uh, acquisition and, uh, and uh, developing this is brilliant talent. Because we, we haven't really had much. No, but we have talked HR. about one yes. of the biggest challenges if we want to evolve exactly. in Sweden is yes. or, or is is the talent. Mm. Yeah. The pa- yeah. is the talent pool there and how can we think about that? So yeah. it's a very super relevant uh, angle on AI yeah. and uh, tech. But of course, I mean, you've had uh, lots of interesting names there, but I'm sort of missing the the uh, the uh, core science people and yes, like Donitsa well, Kragic or, or yes. Fredrik Heinz or Amy Lutvi. Or, or Heinz we have, but yeah. But yeah, I would love also, you know, I'm the techie person here or science person, so... I'd love to have more people. Yeah. Like and uh, well. also the, the the ones working on it from the humanistic side. Uh, right. Uh, 
uh, Dignam in Umeå, for of example, course, yes. is, is uh, really that's on the list. Well. In, interesting and cool people that has a lot of great insights into it. But then, I mean, it it would also be interesting to to listen to some of the the uh, policymakers around this. I think that also Setteberg, if you yes, have yeah. met with her, we actually had her, I think, in the beginning as well, also Setteberg, right? Not also. Well, I think her name has come up, but I can't remember if also was actually here. It's uh, interesting because they, for a short time, Sweden has this role of a CEO of Sweden yeah. and, and or CIO of Sweden, yeah. and, and she had that role. and And I, I think it was too bad that they didn't continue with such. It's a, role. a cool but concept. It is, and it is a cool idea. It, it clearly she showed that there was a necessity for such a role and something that could be further developed and explored. And she's a great person, so so I think that you. No, we haven't had. I'm, I'm pretty sure. Okay, yeah, yeah. No, but that's she's good. usually involved in a lot of these kind of. Yeah, yeah. anyway. Julan. Yeah. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. So much more to talk about. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so many untouched topics as well. Yes. By the way, <laughs> can come back a second time yeah, yeah. if you want to. Awesome. Thank you very much, Julan. Thank you. Have a nice night. Bye bye.